Welcome to Mecha Nations, a critical analysis and rewatch podcast of all things Mecha. I'm one of your hosts, Ignis Maddox, and the pillows is the soundtrack to my life. I'm Steven Hero. Tato's cute. I'm PMC Trilogy, and I'm happy to announce that, inspired by the name Daikon, my new hit single will be called Turn Up For What? You ready? It feels like it's been a while since we recorded. Even though it's only been two weeks. Well, it's because we we accelerated to light speed, and so months passed here <laughs> on, oh boy. on Earth. I'm... I, I hope I hope I don't get in trouble with with our guests when it comes to this because I'm going to complain about this today, but but it's fine. We'll get there. All right. Hello, welcome to Mechanations. You're here. This is right. This is the podcast about critical analysis and rewatching Mecha shows. That's, Some, a, good, that's a good NPR podcast you got going, like podcast voice. Oh, do you yeah. do you like my NPR okay. voice? The next thing that happened will surprise you. Anyway, I'm I'm sorry to put Jesse Thorne and NPR on blast. <laughs> Like they do on Parks and Rec. But anyway, we don't talk about Parks and Rec on this show. We talk about mechs. I am one of the hosts that talks about mechs, Ignis Maddox. Here are our other hosts. Hello, hello. I'm Steven Hero. I'm PMC Trilogy. Guys, hello. Yeah. How you doing? I'm good. I'm well. You guys are, are ready? Healthy we've, and hail. We've got a new thing we're starting today. We, we don't get to start new things in every episode, which is why we're going to take the time here and, and welcome you into our space station? Our, our homie space station? Our floating fortress? Yeah. Our, our uh, lunar, the silver star, our, our, our space station? Uh, don't tempt me. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> definitely a great name. I was going to make a joke about uh, obvious Star Destroyer being built uh, nearby. Right, yeah. No, we'll talk about that in our in our discussion of Gunbuster today. Y- yes, yes. No, well, well, maybe not today. Today we'll be discussing... Oh, that's right. We'll be getting into something related to Gunbuster in, in, insofar as it's the people who made it. It's true. Uh, but but first, before we, we get into that, we, we typically spend a little bit of time discussing... I don't necessarily want to say current events, but what we're up to, just easing into easing into the mech pool, mech, yeah. mech hot tub. Helping, this- helping you folks understand where we are right now with, you know, games and other things that are going on at the moment. Right. Hopefully it gives you an idea of where we're at critically. Speaking of that, PMC, I think, I think, uh, aren't you, uh, don't you have some, uh, don't you have a machine gun now? I do. I, well, Merry Christmas. Oh, 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 uh, oh, I oh. thought it would be a great time of year. You know, I, I really wanted to sidestep the Is Die Hard a Christmas Movie discourse this year, so I decided to. I feel like this is definitive. I don't, I don't think there's anything to defend here. It's, it definitely is. Right. It like, definitely is. It's an action movie. You can make anything a Christmas movie, so why not an action movie? Right. It seems straightforward. Yeah. Don't be a jerk about it. Yeah. But- <laughs> I mean, like, it's not like a gotcha. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, just, exactly. It just is. It's fine. Any movie could be a Christmas movie to you. If you watch that movie every year at Christmas, there. That yeah, is your Christmas it's, movie. Yeah, genre means nothing, everyone. And so I decided to, uh, with the probing of some of my acquaintances online, pick up Die Hard Nakatomi Plaza, uh, which is a 2002 first-person shooter uh, it was released in the Liftech engine, even though I believe its story started in a different engine because it was some fans who wanted to make a first-person shooter that was faithful to the original movie. That's pretty... Like, there's something very PlayStation 1 about that, right? Yeah, like, it was definitely that era of the late 90s, early 2000s, where you still had that sort of... That sort of garage band element that you could make a first-person shooter, go to Fox Interactive after getting c and d and then say, like, hey, Fox, we want to pitch you on this. And then eventually Fox relents, and they let you make this game. I don't want to take us into a, a very PMC on-brand cul-de-sac. 
but but man, C and D letters are some bullshit. That's that's some right. Well, look, I mean, all I'm gonna say is that when something becomes an important part of the culture, chances are that it should probably be made more available for you know later people to directly comment on it instead of do things that are just inspired by it. We're going to probably talk about inspiration in this podcast today, today. and in future episodes. Uh, but, you know, it's certainly true here. Die Hard is an influential work. It's not surprising that, you know, uh, 10, 12 years later, and then it's not surprising that we're still playing the game today. The game wasn't critically well-received, I don't think, but it's serviceable enough. And even more exciting for my purposes... Uh, an acquaintance of mine who's very good at finding glitches uh, found a very reliable method of clipping through doors. Excellent. And discovered that many of the end-level triggers are active regardless of whether or not you've done other things in the level. So it, it's common, especially in games of the era, that you'll have a speed run where you just find the shortest path to the door. That's the end of the level. And that's it. You end the level. And some levels are, you know, 30 seconds because of that. An, an easy visual example, uh, in, in Donkey Kong 64, there is an orangutan character who has very long arms. And you can use his very long arms to reach the door portals that you shouldn't have access to. And some runners have found that as a way to get access to doors early. Right, exactly. So that, it was one of those situations where, because the developer does not expect you to be able to be there, they don't worry about turning the door off. You know, there are other levels in Die Hard Nakatomi Plaza and other games like that where you do have to defeat an enemy first or you know do something else to activate the end level shoot the glass uh, but that's actually a great example there, the, if you remember Die Hard the movie there's a part where Hans Gruber pretends to be Bill Clay and there's a cutscene in the game where you know Hans Gruber reveals he's Bill Clay and he led John McClane into a trap and they shoot the glass and John McClane cuts his feet on the glass etc uh, in the speedrun of Die Hard Nakatomi Plaza, uh, when Hans is trying to bait us into his trap, there's a locked door. We just clip through the door and leave. <laughs> and, That's excellent. And then when we start the next level, we, we're still in the part where we have bleeding feet. And so our, inexplicably, for no reason, you enter the next level and your feet are just gushing blood. <laughs> There's no reason. We don't know why. I need... Okay. So, um, there is a, a movie film that came out recently called Serenity. Um, and uh, spoilers for the film Serenity. Uh, the, the twist is that it takes place in a video game. Uh, and I want the next big indie film to be a uh, a... a like a narrative version of the speed run of Die Hard Knock <laughs> It's very very good. Uh, so so anyway, uh, to end the story, uh, we've halved the time on the speed run. I think the previous world record RTA was like an hour thirteen. Uh, as of Friday, at the time of recording, I put it down at thirty two fifty six, and it will be in a speed run marathon, an online marathon uh, on uh, Monday the. 16th of December, uh, um, online marathon called Shots Fired. I also have other uh, speedruns in that marathon as well. Uh, True Crime New York City will be in it, of course. And then also a mech game, Slave Zero, a 1999 mech game that I've talked about on the podcast before, will also be in that speedrun marathon. Uh, and those two runs will be on Sunday night. And again, that's twitch.tv slash Shots Fired Marathon. Now, the premise of Shots Fired, of course, is that any game that in which shots are fired can can take part. Generally speaking, uh, there are some edge cases. Uh, someone, made, someone every year has made a very strong case that Pokemon Snap <laughs> is a shots fired game and they keep letting it in. <laughs> 
it has to be actual shots, right? Like not the colloquial shots. Well, fired, that's the like thing, though, shots. right? If you're if you're on a photo shoot, is that a shot I was, fired? I was going to say, you know, I, I don't. I would. I think that if 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 a fatal frame here, bring it right in. If the only like uh, limiter is that shots need to be fired, I think that photography games must but, then be okay. included. I do not think they are limited by that. I think that if we we took that to the Supreme Court, I think you would be I right. would be vindicated. Okay, okay, that's fair. Uh, and the only other game note for me uh, for this week is that I am about like 15 hours into Fallout 3. I've streamed some of it, oh. and I'm having a really a wonderful time. Part of that also too is that be- since the last time I played Fallout 3, which was around launch in 2008. Uh, I lived for three years in the D.C. metro area. <laughs> Hilarious. And so that does color my perception of the game a little bit, and it's kind of a bit funnier. Right. Uh, and then also, I think, you know, being more more leftist, I'm a little more in tune with a lot of the, uh, you know, the anti-corporate sort of uh, humor that goes on in the, in the locales in Fallout 3. And also, Fallout 3 is not weighed down. I think most of the changes made in Fallout 4 were negative. Yeah. I, I view the factions as negative. The construction system is negative. And so, for me, Fallout 3 has a focus on what I want, which is exploring ruins. I think also, I would say, or what would you say about, like, the, the context of... Not necessarily choosing to play Fallout Three, and then and then engaging with it in the context of like a, a stream. Not to say that you're like you would otherwise avoid Fallout Three, but do you think this opportunity in particular is affecting the way that it's landing for you, or do you? Think- I definitely think so because in the in the context of my stream, one of the things that I do uh, is that I allow viewers to pick games who are you know their subscribers. They can pick games. The games are voted on. So Fallout Three was one of those. Fallout Three was chosen by a good good acquaintance and friend of mine online. Won a poll. And what I've decided to do with Western RPGs is play them from the perspective of this Rude Diego persona. And it's something I've started doing just as sort of a way to, to spice up the stream. And to I, frame and your role play. To frame my role playing. And also, I think the other thing, too, is that with these Western games, it's very easy to fall into a min-max mindset. And I really, I really always dislike that. I like... I like trying to make it as much of an experience as possible. And so putting it through this framing, uh, doing it in the context of a stream as a sort of performance, I do think is enhancing my experience with the game. Yeah, I feel like that's that's one of those things that people discount. And like, obviously you can bring this to any game, but I, I think that Fallout, those... Fallout 3 is a big enough sandbox with enough random shit thrown in it that it is conducive to that kind of play yeah. in, in a way that I think is easy to hand wave. And, and I think when you boil down its main components, obviously it's a little wanting compared to something, you know, Planescape Torment or, you know, your yeah, well, Fallout 1 and 2. The other thing I'll say in terms of writing, I, the writing isn't complex, uh, but there really is something amazing about the one of the core things being a, a very happy man yelling at you about fighting the good fight. Mm-hmm. Like in 2019, I need that kind of stuff. Like right. just you know, it's also really funny too uh, because the guy who voices Three Dog in Fallout Three is the same voice actor uh, Eric Dellums as uh, Aravos in the Dragon Prince, and, yes, which is a okay. hell of a thing to be experiencing simultaneously. <laughs> I could see that being. But, <laughs> I could see that being an interesting conflict. Yes. 
Uh, but yeah, that's that's about it for video games mm-hmm. for you, huh? Yes, but sir. Fallout Three of God Wandering Through the Wasteland of of Washington is it? Wa- it's Washington. Yeah, yeah, it's the yeah the capital wasteland. Four, right? Yes, the okay. Commonwealth. Yes, uh, I'm glad that the, the, you're running into comical towns named after signs that have deteriorated. Uh, have you have you done the Republic of Dave yet? That or, will be the beginning of my next stream. Excellent. I'm sitting outside the Republic of Dave. I've never been to the Republic of Dave. This yeah, will be my first time. You will enjoy, I'm sure. Having never played Fallout 3, when you say Republic of Dave, that just seems like some weird planet they would walk on, like in Rick and Morty or something. It's completely... Republic of Dave, I would... Uh, so, if Fallout, the, the franchise, has like a a feature, one of those... In each game, there is probably one particularly weird settlement or character or notably like like something that is key to like that setting to exist right mm-hmm. so in new vegas it would be something like um yes man or or even uh, house right like the the existence of house is very fallout specific in a in a in a way that would be difficult to explain succinctly here mm-hmm. uh but in fallout 3 it would be like Republic of Dave is one of the notable Republic of Dave or Megaton itself even Megaton is, yeah is Tenpenny probably, Tower um, Tenpenny is another good example and and in Fallout Four it would be like if Fallout Four has its share of good and bad versions of this it would be like um, uh, what's his name telling you that there's a settlement under attack or <laughs> um, you know I mean uh, anything to do with, with Valentine and the baseball diamond well the, you know I was gonna say the, see the robot and yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. the robot detective. Oh, it's great. It's like, good. Oh, yeah. Nick Valentine's probably the best part of that game. There's Nick Valentine's good. Hancock is good. Piper's good. You know, Fallout 4, like you said, like most of the things that they did insofar as like creating a more Fallout-y experience, if 2 Fallout 4 was worse. Like it, it created more of a, a Mass Effect than a Fallout. Right. Like, yeah. You, you I think can, that's fair. You can kind of imagine why they would make the choice to do that in a post Mass Effect 1, mm-hmm. 2, and 3 world, um, that would feel conducive to modern console gaming at the time. Yeah. And, and like it and on paper it feels like fine, right? Yeah. And and it just it's not it's not fine. It wasn't unfortunately. No. It, narrator it wasn't. Yeah. Steven Hero, do you have uh, uh Death Stranding still <laughs> delivering mm. packages. Still Chapter 3. Chapter 3 is when the game really opens up. And actually, the game has become really a sublime experience for me. All I'm doing, I'm not really doing any story shit. I am simply delivering packages. You discover more outposts as you go along. And the more packages you successfully deliver to those outposts you get, you build up a ranking. And that's measured with stars out of five stars. And when you get five stars for each outpost, you get a little star on your pants. So now my whole job in life is to get as many stars, all the stars as possible on those pants. I'm trying to fill out the map. It is incredibly relaxing experience. I, I love it, the fact that it's a hiking simulator. The war scratching his head right now. You, no, no. I have, a, I have a question. I have a very specific question because I've listened to people talk about this game Mm -hmm. and i will probably play it someday it's probably not going to happen soon but i am interested to play this game at some point but i have like a pmc game i have a question for you my understanding is that one of the types of uh, baddies that can spawn in the wilderness mules or bts mules Mm -hmm. are people who are addicted to delivering packages Mm -hmm. are you ever worried that you are a mule hasn't come up hasn't come up okay not a chance purely fiction (laughs) I, I just because people talk the people who like I, I've heard talk. No, about I said that as a yeah. joke. Possibly now that you mention it, yeah, it's just that the people who I I've seen really like this game, and there's like some streamers I know online who like really really loved like you know the the people who are 
because it's their job, spend eight hours playing a game. They have played this game for 90 hours and finished it, and they love it. And, you know, one of the things they talk about is that they really enjoyed the the process, the mm-hmm. simple act of delivering packages in this game. But then also I would learned that there was an enemy who were these people who were addicted to delivering packages who try to steal your packages. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, wait a second. <laughs> so I'm like, funny about this premise. Well, so, I mean, I think that's a really good observation, though. That feels like probably something like... That's that. Uh, I I don't want to. Intention is is meaningless. Mm-hmm. Obviously, when when we're weighing these things, but that feels like probably right. a. Uh, when we get around to me, I'm going to talk about a thing, a pretentious thing. In so far as like, uh, do games have to be fun? Blah 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 blah. Situation, but. Um, well, it really taps into something that's very basic with all of us: is checking things off a box, be that packages or anything else. Just reaching the end point with the package, and it's not always a seamless experience. The worst parts of. Depending who you're talking to, if you don't, if you like part of Death Stranding, you might not like the combat. The story might not vibe with you. As of now, it's largely inoffensive. I'm enjoying this the world in and of itself. The cutscenes are hit and miss, personally, when they're landing with me or not. But there are times when you're like, "Fuck, I have to go through this BT infested slog of an environment, doing the same encumbrance missions over and over again." That could be frustrating. But the, largely, those are optional. There is a critical path you can do. So keep that in mind as well. But I, the game works best as a metaphor, and its storytelling works best as visual metaphors. Connecting with other players, building roads to connect other people, that's where the game really shines. The story is classic Kojima. I don't need to go more into it now, especially with two people who haven't necessarily played the game. And plus, I'm not actually very far in the game story-wise. There are 15 chapters. I'm only on chapter 3. I will probably be on chapter 3 for most of December. I'm now worried... Because I'm a very uh, anal retentive in how I schedule games, because time is a precious commodity. So I'm like, there's a lot of big March games coming out, and I want to play a game at the end of January. So I'm like, can I finish Death Stranding by like January 20 something? I don't know if I can do that. And I've been putting like two hours a night into the game because I'm just because things corrode over time. So I got to oh, rebuild absolutely. those roads. Yeah, I got. Yeah. I cannot leave this map with corroded roads. I have to build every road. I'm not usually like this with games, but Death Stranding is just such a a relaxing cycle. The environments are beautiful to explore, and it's a just—it's a perfect example of one of those just one more thing games, like Fire Emblem was when you're boosting up your stats at the end of a mission or right. exploring the uh, the Abbey. I have a question regarding uh, Death Stranding, and kind of it's aimed at both of you in an interesting way. Um, so, Stephen Hero, do you feel like the parts that are frustrating about Death Stranding? Despite them being frustrating, do you? They think- could also be very, very funny. Well, well. So what I wanted to ask was, do you think that the d- despite them being frustrating, do you think that they overall add to the the uh, engagement for you? That that the the fact that they are frustrating creates an emotional picture that you feel is is like complete for for Death Stranding. Do you feel like if those things were like addressed, that it might be despite it being a more simple game to engage with that it might affect the like overall picture it would hamper my enjoyment largely because it's built about that moments when you finally climb up the mountain and sometimes kojima or you know the team itself places a very a perfectly musical accompaniment as you're just cresting that peak and then everything is suddenly suddenly relaxing as you're about to reach that destination you're filled with a sense of euphoria that fewer, not a few are the games, but a lot of games have trouble delivering too. So it it does if you're trying to complete everything at a certain point. But this is largely player imposed, yes, because you might be doing the, the same mission like five or six times. At that point, that encumbrance can perhaps hamper enjoyment. But again, 
that's largely player inflicted. So I want to take that and and turn it towards PMC because PMC, you mentioned that you you are familiar with some folks who enjoyed the game, and I wanted to ask. Mm-hmm. This is a very pretentious question. <clears throat> oh please! So this is the moment, audience, where mm-hmm. you can turn this off because we're all fucking nerds, and we're gonna get d- d- our books dumped and shoved into our lockers. But in any case, I feel the- like I'm usually the one with the pretentious like film recommendations. Like Ooh. check out this new French new wave. Yeah. <laughs> do you, do you feel like the people who enjoyed the game do they enjoy it as a game or do they enjoy it as a piece and 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 what i mean by that is when we talk about video games video games videos games gamesters uh the thing that we're we're really kind of mostly talking about as a like cultural blob is like was it fun was it did it indulge you in some way we've talked about i've talked specifically about how when we describe games being fun what we're what we're really describing is does it indulge the player in some way right a, a lot of the times and you know do you feel like when people describe like i loved death stranding because of xyz reason do you think what they're describing is like the gameplay was engaging for me or do you think they're describing the experience as a whole it was one i found enjoyable so the the streamer that i was referencing earlier and i'll i'll name him explicitly here because he's a nice guy and i'm not trying to subtweet him uh, is a streamer named an eternal enigma a guy i met at twitchcon and uh from what i could gather uh in terms of you know his time i lurked a little bit while he was playing the game uh, his bread and butter he's mostly uh his big thing is silent hill it's it's his big streaming thing mm. and so uh seeing the approach that he took to it uh, I do think he enjoyed it, you know, as an experience. I think it is something, you know, that he that he, he he talks about in that way. I don't think, you know, that he necessarily felt that it was, you know, a, a, you know, any partic- that it was just like a, a mechanical thing, um, you know, that he really was there for sort of the full package experience. Uh, so full package delivering package. Well, it's funny that you bring up Silent Hill because I'm a big Silent Hill fan, and I there's sometimes where I just want to play a game ass game. Silent Hill, though, is all about the atmosphere for me. The, the game mechanics are inherently, and you could argue whether this was intentional or not, but debilitating and they alienate me. But just sometimes it's a slog. It's that game, outside of existential reasons or thematic reasons or even environmental reasons, playing that game can be a fucking slog. But I really appreciate it for the environmental details. Well, so this is what I wanted to get at the core at, because this is, this is when we, if we're, we're transitioning now into the Ignis Maddox Marin. Uh, this is largely, uh, you know, if we've listened to previous episodes, you, you'll know that I've kind of been in cyclical patterns with games. Like, I'm, I've been playing Pokemon Sword still, I've been playing World of Warcraft still, uh, but the kind of thing that I've been into games-wise right now, very recently, if you follow me on Twitter, you might have seen a Twitter thread I posted recently about Pathologic and Pathologic 2. I had recently been on, so I like long-form media a lot. Uh, and so when uh, when a Twitter okay let me let me let me though scale this a little bit um, anything past eight hours is entirely unacceptable eight hours is in itself entirely unacceptable in fact I think the longest I would accept for a long form media thing is probably three to four hours. I think that is an... Four hours is the most I will accept for some kind of piece at all, whether that's, you know, the the film Cleopatra or Return of the King Extended or a video on YouTube about Pokemon. I I have to ask now, 
Is there a YouTube video essay longer than eight hours? Well, so I don't. Or maybe don't answer that. I don't. Question. I think that answered it. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. I don't want to bring any. You know, peace, I'm sorry. I, but there are continue. definitely eleven hour <laughs> breakdown videos that are not valuable. But you know, I'm, I'm not going to name any names. In any case, there's got to be a From Software breakdown or a Twin Peaks breakdown that's longer than four hours. Well, like, and or even, do you say eight hours? So maybe eight eleven hours. hours is what the one I was specifically referring to. But that that is going to ring specific bells to certain people. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm I am not referring to anyone specific. There is more than one person or group that does this thing. Eleven hours is too long for any single thing to demand anyone's attention to be. That's fair. I I would say for a single thing, if it's meant to be divvied out into things that structure form whatever yeah um so pathologic and pathologic 2 are video games that i have not played and will never play but uh mild shock um well so okay let's let's i want to this is an interesting thing to get into in an episode that's introducing new audience members but i i want to i want to pitch something to to audience members insofar as engaging with with any any art form and specifically video games and where it's difficult so I, I want to paint a picture for you. Um, so you're you're gonna go see there's a there's a, a Renoir exhibit in Philly. You're going to Philly and you're gonna see the exhibit, but you can't see the exhibit until you pass this obstacle course. And if you fail the obstacle course, you just don't get to see it. You just gotta go. You gotta keep going until you get past this obstacle course. And once you get past this obstacle course, you will have the proper emotional picture in order to experience this Renoir painting. Now. This is this is kind of a, a, a tough and absurd and difficult situation, right? Do you and, think someone's done this? Uh, oh, I'm sure. Can I do this? It's probably been done. Like it, as okay. an, it has been done because I just right. described video games. Yeah, <laughs> that is what I've just right. Described. Well, you d- I know you're describing video games, <laughs> but, but I also have to do research later. Thank so, you. Um, but my my point is that video games are have have an interesting structural. I don't want to say flaw because it's not. It's 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 intrinsic to them as, as a medium that you have to be skilled at engaging with them in order to receive whatever point there is. And and like for for the vast majority of games, this is a dexterity thing of like learn the game's pattern and then uh, do it, and then you get the sword. Uh, and and you know and in the the games I'm talking about specifically and part of the reason what I was teeing up for you is is the idea that that games can have frustrating or bad mechanics as a, a uh, an intentional structure meant to paint an emotional picture for you and and pathologic and pathologic too are are created with with this sort of thing in mind uh, and. It's been really fascinating to dig into what those games are about. They're really, really interesting. I, I drop this name a lot, and it makes me feel like I've only got the one reference. But I, I, I stress this is a Jorge Luis Borges uh, magical realism situation. These games are made by Ice Pick Studios, I think is the name of the, the studio. It's a Russian right. developer. Yeah. Ice Pick Lodge. Ice Pick Lodge uh, Studios, and they are survival horror games. Uh so if you're if you play if you're someone who's been online uh and and watch streams and stuff survival horror was like i want to say what do you think like like four three five years ago was like the the hottest hot shit 
for for like stream games and and YouTube let's plays was like your your rusts your yeah I think when your, you had it there was a big burst when uh, Amnesia like Dark Descent yes like the, that yeah, era. yeah yeah I yes. think it's who you're referring to right yeah that's yeah. that's kind of what I'm where where you're the the you know you're watching someone manage lots of meters and if one of those meters falls the the game stops um, this is the survival horror genre in a nutshell um, and Pathologic is, is is specifically set up so that these things are not empowering. It's an exercise in disempowerment and and storytelling and the worth of storytelling when disempowered and and you know it, all of that is very worthwhile. I see the value in it. It's good. I I really all the things that I think are interesting about those games are are really not linked to them being not interesting and worth my time on this earth to to experience. And and it's 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 tough, right? Because there is a very real argument for them being a horrible nightmare to engage with being the point and intrinsic to its value. I just think that I I feel like I have have the things that are interesting about those games to me are not things that have to do with the fact that they suck to play mm-hmm. and are and are bad. Like yeah. the writing is really really interesting and it's got some really cool Exploring the 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 genre, the form, with the act of writing itself, which is always great. I find that to be super interesting. Uh, I would recommend uh, the 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 Bond British H, H- bomber guys video about Pathologic. It is two hours long. Uh, it is worth your time. I would say to experience that game that way. And if you are a, a better video games player than me, I, I am someone for whom uh, being able to complete a mission at all still feels very satisfying and, and validating. And, and so challenge is, is not necessarily something that I find always worth dedicating time to. I'm perfectly fine with experiencing the narrative at my own pace. And uh, I've been experiencing Pathologic through the YouTube versions. I've watched two two hour version two hour videos about the uh uh the story of pathologic one the the h bomb one that i just shot out in another Solmatol, s-u-l-m-a-t-u-l i believe is the name of this channel that breaks down the actual plot in a little bit more detail um i think the thing that's interesting about those and the there was also a rock paper shotgun uh, series that that also talks about pathologic that i haven't finished I, i've read the first part of but i haven't finished it's just interesting. Uh, I think Silent Hill would be a more console-friendly version of what uh, Pathologic is dealing with insofar as the uh, gameplay experience being a nightmare mm-hmm. uh, uh, contributing to your your experience. PMC, uh, I think I think here at this table here at Mechanations, uh, we, we have the advantage and disadvantage of having similar tastes all throughout here we're, we're kind of all at the same temperature when it comes to this sort of thing for the most part we have variances obviously we have preferences differences but fuck this right yeah like, no i i i have for exactly the reason you alluded to earlier with your your example of the of the art museum with the obstacle course yeah i think if you like challenge that's dope. Like, yeah, I want you to have that challenge. Absolutely. In no way is anything I'm about to say saying that like Sekiro shouldn't exist, right? And you shouldn't have access to it, right? 
But I also think, you know, you have to understand the the, the thing that, like challenge is not the same for for everyone. And so I think when you gate things behind this, for me, I think the example I always bring up and I'm sure Ignis can see this coming from a mile away is I always like to talk about Undertale in this situation. Sure, of course. Undertale yeah. being a game that I deeply appreciate for its art music theming but it is absolutely a nightmare to actually play and so i mean again it's, it's another one of the things but like that's so for for me when you're including some sort of gameplay element that is meant to impart some sort of you know a, a theme and especially that gameplay element has to operate in ad- adversely to the player in some way like just mm, make sure make sure it's worth it and make sure it doesn't like completely derail the experience of playing the game i get it your gun jamming in far cry 2 is supposed to sort of convey the the harshness of the environment right but i mean it, it is a game about shooting people yeah i mean <laughs> so this is where it, it becomes tough right because in, when it comes to those kinds of games those questions feel especially with far cry 2 and the example you gave like like for example I understand the rec- the argument for weapon deterioration in Breath of the Wild. I understand the argument. It makes um, thematic sense, yeah. And and there's there's even yes, and I was going to say there is even a thematic re- reason for it. It sucks still. It's still balls. It still sucks. <laughs> there's still and like you know, and the other thing is too, you could have included it and definitely included things that would have make it suck less. Any storage at all would have been nice. <laughs> Uh, you know, for example, just off the top of my head. Yeah, you but, know what's a game where weapon durability is a lot less of a headache, but still makes sense for being in a wasteland? Uh, Fallout, Fallout 3. 3. Well, yes, uh, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. I, I mean, so the the thing with Pathologic is is very much... Uh, okay, so it's very... Mm, it's it's very dependent on the the fact that you are choosing to engage with it despite it not being... In, in indulging you and, and that being one of its virtues kind of or you the player's virtues this kind of gets to the core at something that that we have discussed regarding undertale before mm-hmm. which is this sort of assumption regarding how and why a player might make certain choices undertale makes these kinds of assumptions that feel like they are meant to be clever gotchas uh, but but fail to take into account a sort of lack of liberty to make other choices when presented with certain information. Um, and I'm being I, I know that this is that's a super vague, almost Xenogears esque sentence I just said. <laughs> but the, I'm trying to honor people who are engaging with that text without any. Yeah, I'm trying not to be the spoiler boy. It's very interesting. It's worth your time if you're someone who appreciates storytelling. I think I don't think. The gameplay shit is adding much to the. I I'm I'm fine with being told by two British boys who played it that the it b- being a slow walking speed and the combat not being fun and dying very quickly in those situations are are meant to disempower you and that disempowerment has as value and I'm I'm like good and cool I'm glad that you played that so I don't I can watch it and just read the story. Because I, I I do think that its value would go down if it wasn't some kind of collaborative narrative, which like video games are that that the because part of the point of it, without spoiling, is the choice to 
continue to engage when the fact that it is fiction and that none of it actually matters becomes clear. That is a, that, you know, I don't, I wouldn't count that as a spoiler because that is intrinsic to the act of playing a video game is, is this is a, a thing you are choosing to engage with despite it having no effect on the real world and it not necessarily, you know, it, it, that is an important part of understanding what happens in Pathologic 1. I don't know about Pathologic 2. I do not know. I'm I'm not... No, it's not going to happen. I'm not going <laughs> to play Pathologic 2. Yeah. I'm not going to do that. But yeah, that's, that's what Ignis Maddox has been doing mm. for video games. But we don't talk about video games yeah. on this... On this no, this never. Anime! Goddamn podcast. We talk about anime. And uh, actually, we're not talking about anime in this episode, though. Well, we're talking anime we're talking history. about anime in the in the region, in the neighborhood of anime. That's right. We're talking about a Japan. Yeah, we're talking about a. a what, what would you? Was this a a a, a publisher, a a creator? What kind of studio would you call the the studio we're talking about today? Uh, let's see. Like, they would very proudly refer to themselves, and they do. Maybe not in 2019, but especially in 1990, if you were to go up to any of the founding members of Gainax, they would say they're otaku-turned-professional, or just <laughs> otaku at their heart. And we'll talk a lot about that, because that is a very charged word. It definitely seems like, uh, especially even with the the uh, series we'll be talking about, uh, not this week, but next week, Gunbuster, it seems like there's a lot of that DNA throughout. Uh, even Coach, Coach's name is Ota. Yes. You know, so, and that seems like... It seems like a hey nerds. Hey nerds. It's, they named this yeah. guy nerd, or you know, or actually like gross nerd is really what otaku means. <laughs> mm-hmm. But we'll get we'll get into it. I like to think of them as big fans. Big fans. <laughs> that, that those two words have been indelibly printed in my psyche now. I refer to things just casually off the top of the head as I'm a big fan or they're big fans. Big fans all around. Yeah, it, thanks, Sally. If you're yeah, if you're wondering why big fan is a joke on this podcast, uh, please go and enjoy all our Gundam Wing episodes. Yes, Thank you. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, that's. Uh, I feel like this is a good opportunity for us to transition into our conversation about the history of Gynax. Do you want to start with our history with Gynax first or save that till the end? Uh, well, I guess I'm not sure if... Um, uh, I, we could start out here because I'm not sure if everyone here has a whole lot to talk about, right? I'm not trying... I'm not subtweeting anybody here. Yeah, well, I think maybe I have, I have the least, so maybe let me go first because I do believe at some point I watched just the series of Ava and it completely passed from my mind. So you were you were spared in many ways. So <laughs> I I you know who knows if and when I'll ever watch it again. Again, I have not watched end end of Ava, which I understand to be a deal, an experience. It's a, a lot. And uh, and then Goran Lagan, I do recall somewhat more watching it in my collegiate years, and I honestly remember having a kind of. Immature reaction to it, I feel like. I mostly just liked Kamina, and I was like, oh, this series is dumb once Kamina goes away. We'll we'll revisit that. I'm excited to revisit it and reevaluate. I am so psyched. I am more more of an adult person at this point. Uh, And I think that's pretty much it, unless I'm missing other things that are Gynax and I don't know them. No, I think knowing what I know about what you've consumed, I think that's... Wait, who makes uh, Fully Cooley? Oh, Gynax. Okay, yeah, so I watched that when I was on Adult Swim. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I would say then you would have more or less the average... Those are the 
big. Those, those big are the ones. three big yeah, ones. Yeah. Okay. For Western releases, that's, you know, Western we would refer to as American and, and UK, you know, and, and various other uh, uh, random <laughs> sort of places that are included in that very loaded phrase. But, you know, um, Fuikuli would be... For a lot of people, they're, you know, the gateway, right? I mean, Evangelion came first. Evangelion was also released before Fully Cooley Yeah, was. but Fully Cooley was more accessible, especially if you weren't buying DVDs, because Adult Swim did air Fully Cooley, and Adult Swim only aired two episodes of Ava heavily edited. Something that, that becomes clear when you study the the distribution and fan, like, acceptance of certain c- series is that, like, access was an enormous, like, you know, sort of wall to that, and, and the advent of the internet especially is where people began to have more access to the canon. Yeah. You know, like the people I think had spotty, like sort of local, like, Oh, like I can, you know, to my experience, like I, I had uh, a neighbor who had magic night, Ray earth tapes and, and copies of slayers and, and dubs, Yo, or slayers, subs of, you know, sailor moon films and stuff like that. And that, and so that was the particular, not related to Gynax, but that's how I got started on, on anime sort of, uh, of that sort. Um, so for me and Gynax, it's a little bit, so Gynex, you can you can blame Fully Cooley for Ignis Maddox's interest in critical analysis at all. Um, Fully Cooley, hey audience, uh, we have an email mechanationspod at gmail dot com. We also have a Twitter. Should we talk about Fully Cooley on Mechanations? The, Fully Cooley does Hold not. On, I'm drafting my email right now. Fully Cooley does not feature when we defined. If you go back to our early episodes, we defined what what a mech is to us and and fully coolly does not feature anything in that regard uh but if you would want to hear us talk about fully coolly ignis maddox me this host will will take any excuse <laughs> any excuse at all already drafting the history um but yeah uh fully coolly is is a series that uh for me it turned on the part of the brain that wanted to uh, dig into what was in it and find a meaning and not be super concerned about whether that meaning was supposed to be there. Um, Fully Cooley was really the first series that introduced that idea at all. And I was, I think, in like seventh grade. Like, And, and so for that, it, it is deeply valuable. And Gynax just... It, it, and I think this is probably true for lots of people who are anime fans, and, and, and in particular robot anime fans, in, in which this weird made-up genre I just said to incorporate both super robot stuff and mecha stuff. Um, Gynax has like a kind of one, two, three, four punch of deeply lovable... Uh, shows that that incorporate a in in when we were talking about Code Geass, uh, the, our previous show, I, I I derogatorily referred to its technique as a, a shotgun of possible interests that it blows into your face, and it seems like this is Gynax's modus operandi. You know, we're we're probably going to talk about the Daikon shorts, but the Daikon shorts are just that, yeah. And Otaku Video, you know, is just that. Like it is, it is like here's a bunch of anime stuff here and it's cool and there's a song and and here's a bunny girl and she's got a radish you know and and actually the, to my first introduction to the daikon bit 
uh, in Fukui episode five, uh, uh, Haruko has to do battle with a, a large hand shaped robot. Um, and the form this takes, uh, she, uh, kind of transforms into a bunny suited girl who, who fights off the robot with a slingshot and, and she says Daikon five and you know, that's right. And I'm, and I'm sitting there in, in eighth grade being like, I'm sure that makes sense. <laughs> I'm sure that's a thing. And yeah, it is. It's just, you know, not a thing. There, those Daikon shorts were not available. Like, maybe oh, no. if I went to Otakon in fucking 1999 or some shit, I would have seen it. But, like, you know. Yeah, there's a fun argument we had, and I'll talk about in the history, that the Daikon videos are actually arguably the first OVA, but we'll talk about that later. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, yeah. But, yeah, that's, for me, like, it's not too different from PMCs, really. It's just that I was able to sort of... I, I have some acquaintances who are bigger fans of some of the other Gynax fair than I am. I, I, I also experienced Evangelion early, but uh, 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 in my youth more than now, and I definitely do suffer from it a little bit more than now, I, I have a difficult time staying engaged with things that ask a... And I guess people who are going to poo-poo my pathologic opinion <laughs> might, might arrive at this. Uh, I have a hard time staying engaged with things that ask, ask you to feel or empathize with more negative or like unpleasant emotional reactions and and even galleon is that even galleon is that so uh and and there's value to that 100% totally it's just something that I don't I don't necessarily volunteer to I'm never seeing grave of fireflies ever again <laughs> like that's that's not ever happening ever or requiem for a dream if you want to be you know more western or chinatown even chinatown is a deeply unpleasant film you know, like it's it's to give or like Bonnie and Clyde. You know, like oh, there's there's a whole range of possible sort of good things that Ignis Maddox would not elect to experience again. Well, all right. So I was a sprightling yet lad of I don't know, probably sixth or seventh grade. My introduction to Ava was my introduction to, and one of the few introductions to anime that I experienced in middle school. That I'm Ron- sorry, Roroni Kenshin as well. Probably your adult swim, early adult swim fair at that point, like um, the Cowie Bebop. Evangelion, for me at the time, as a rather lonely individual in middle school, t- struck a chord, and I cannot be severed from that chord at this point. The themes, and a lot of it, and as an adult, when I look back, a lot of it I consider to be you know immature, and there's a lot of problematic elements as well. Mm-hmm. But for me at the time, the psychological themes expressed just captured me so much and also i just thought it was an enjoyable show you know the kaiju aspects of it as well the energy of gynax really interests me at first so i went afterwards i would explore a few of the other works but for me and i did revisit ava two summers ago before the netflix re-release so i do have a different lens looking on the work as an adult but if you were to talk to me about gynax in middle school and in high school this was one of the formative i guess anime studios of my youth yeah without a doubt I loved my my relationship with Ava is I can't describe it with one word. I can't succinctly put down good, bad, or just one qualifier such as I love Ava, I hate Ava, but Ava's like a part of my being where sometimes I close my eyes and musical cues will play from it, or if I'm even working through something, I might work through that something through the lens or through some motifs that I first witnessed in Evangelion. But I love a lot of I, I appreciate a lot of the other Gynax stuff as well. I was watching Fooly Cooly, Gurren Lagan, some more obscure Gynax works as well, like Magical Shopping Arcade, Abinabashi. Abinabashi, yeah. 
Those were the big ones. We're going to talk, and also Royal Space Force. I didn't watch Gunbuster. This is my first time watching Gunbuster, but I did catch some of their earlier works. I would always run into Otaku no Video at conventions, but I never actually watched it. I actually recently purchased it. I was hoping to watch it before I did the history. I did not, so I'm going to enjoy it, maybe enjoy it after the history. Have you ever seen uh, Nadia? Yes. Yes. Okay. N- not, not, we'll talk about the, uh, the Miyazaki uh, Hideaki Ano connection as well, which is very much present. Nadia is pretty dope. I like Nadia. Nadia is good. I, I, uh, the other reason I brought up Nadia, uh, uh, what, Secret of Blue Water, what is it called? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, um, oh, His and Her Circumstances, too, which Ano did after Ava, which is really cool as well. Um, but Nadia I, always makes you think of that image. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, how, how to Draw Shinji, and it's, mm, it's Nadia, Nadia, and they just took took off some hair, and it's like, yeah. Shinji. <laughs> it kills me every time. I just love that image. Yeah, so some works some works of art you experience, some novels you experience. It's almost like a mirror into, I won't say soul. That sounds too, I don't know. Pretentious. Pretentious. But it's like a window into yourself, and you see something there, that kernel of something. And at that age, when I first watched Ava, I felt that. I felt that connection. For example, when I first read, this will sound pretentious, Marcel Proust, In Search of, Large Ti- In Search of Lost Time, or James Joyce's Ulysses, or Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse, there is some sort of spiritual connection I felt, not only with, with, with the text, with the text, and with the specific narrative on display there, which I felt with Ava. Despite the fact that Ava comes off as rudimentally immature at sometimes and superficial at the time and still now that reverberates to me very deeply well would you say then you know and not to defend some of the aspects of evangelion that maybe one day we'll get into that are a little bit unfortunate or or problematic we might describe now but what wouldn't those things be kind of the things that helped that be accessible to you at that time yeah you know, some of them yes is that more or less what you're arguing is that Despite that stuff now on reflection being juvenile, mm-hmm. the fact that it was juvenile was what allowed you to connect in the first place and what helped you discover that true that interest, right? Mm-hmm. Is if, if you didn't have that window in of, you know, the fact that the protagonist is a is a disempowered teenager, mm-hmm. you know. And, and I did watch I watched Ava when I was thirteen, when I could have been recruited by the Marduk Institution to the fact that I'm name dropping these deep cuts implies that, you know, Ava's a part of my bones. Right. And you know, it's it's part of that is the you didn't like you, you didn't sign up for like also the two boys take photos of the girls in the dressing room you didn't ask for that necessarily no. but it, as a as a 13 year old that's definitely one of those things that's like ah yes this is for me subconsciously even though that sucks i didn't ask for that mm-hmm. um but no but my, my main point is that 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 stuff has is, is despite it sucking fuck i keep coming back to this pathologic shit despite it sucking it it's part of what helped you get in in the first place yeah and a lot of times with media i consume this is like maybe one of the differences too sometimes between Stephen here and ignis is sometimes i really do like that dark shit the thematically dark shit i'm not saying violence for the sake of violence just like an intense melancholy that really does speak to me at times i think there's an interesting sort of conversation to be had about uh your ability to uh engage with the thing and and not feel guilt at it being leisure you know, there's there's some there's anyway different talk conversation, but yes. And the highs of Ava, like there's some I will still champion from the mountaintop. I rewatching it, some scenes, th- some first off the action scenes, some of them are choreographed brilliantly. Yes, w- like we talked about this before. I'm quoting Austin Walker indirectly here, but whenever decisive battle, th- 
whenever like bureaucracy is working and like people are sitting together at a table mapping out a plan that is like so my shit like so my fucking shit but also a lot of even the some of the psychological stuff too visually on screen really does speak to me it seems like and we might talk about this when we talk about gunbuster next week it seems like hidekiano has an eye for uh watching the the dominoes fall into place so to speak and and you know the following through on on that sort of bureaucracy or that sort of logic seems to be something that is a through line through the work that he is attached mm, definitely to. yeah but yeah it seems like in the west all three of us kind of had a, a similar lens into gynax with different amounts of parsing into it more deeply mm-hmm. so let's begin with some gynax history we're gonna it's a gynax long history. history buckle up cue decisive battle also we're going to, f- we're a lot of familiar characters here. There's some ties with some other history, so it'll be fun. Remember, 1980s bubble economy, baby. Right, right. All right, so let's say if you are aspiring animators in Japan, you want to make an anime, all right? Well, A, be, able to sac- be ready to sacrifice your friends and your family, because unfortunately you're going to be living in an office for quite a while. But B, a lot of this is corporate dictated, unfortunately. So, for example... If you are a creator and want to self-fund or self-publish anime, it's very difficult. There is a market for that, especially if you're doing manga. But anime, it's difficult to get the funds and just the creative manpower to actually, you know, put things on screen. Especially if you want that to air and broadcast nationally. It's usually all corporate-driven. We'll take a look at demographics, securing investors as well. This is a bit different than America. Um, Japanese companies will secure many, many investors. So if you ever saw a film, a Japanese film in theaters, like an anime in theaters, there's usually like eight logos that pop sure, up compared sure. to the U.S. as well. But a lot of those are advertising-based as well. Evangelion, for example, Gynax struck a deal with Sega. That's why you know there's a Sega Saturn that features very prominently in Ava. You see these advertisements all the time. There might be one for Gunbuster with Panasonic. Stephen Hero, we have just watched Code Geass. And that's true. And Code is, Geass as well. Is... Is there sponsorships in anime? <laughs> Question mark. Steven Hero? PMC Trilogy? Are there sponsorships in anime? We will never know. We'll never know. Steven Hero. <laughs> so it's very much a top-down process, which makes the creation of Gynax all the more remarkable. It was a bottom-up process. So much rest on the whims of artists who executives who aren't artists, but the creation of Gynax was unique because it was created by artists. They were fans first and businessmen second. And like I said before, they proudly refer to themselves as otaku. Very much a charge term. In not charge, but it has a lot of different meanings. Ignis, how would you define otaku? Just what associations? So, I mean, I'm, I'm it, it kind of maybe not the best possible sort of... I don't like the term myself. Well, so the, the reason I say that is because it's... It, so there is the understood sort of connotation where you might equate it to nerd right where it's like lightly derogatory but but at this point has l- largely just become a descriptor someone mm-hmm. who has interests that range on either the intellectual or the niche right? yeah niche is largely where nerd or geek kind of comes into play otaku as i understand it is is much more negative than that like i i wouldn't I, I I wouldn't call it a recluse, but it is someone for whom they've they've taken those interests to an extreme level, where it is not a 
a healthy hobby, but rather the 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 center of their universe, as I understand. Yeah, it. if you were to go up to, especially in the 1980s or 1990s, and you were to talk to your average, your stereotypical Japanese salary man, and you talked about otaku, that's exactly probably what they would say. Famously and disgustingly, Hitoshi Yamauchi's infamous take on RPG fans, quote unquote, people who play RPGs are depressed gamers who like to sit alone in their dark rooms and play slow games. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And this is the businessman perspective compared to the fan perspective. I also don't want to also throw too much praise on fans either. Because otaku, if you were to talk to someone who classifies them as an otaku, there's a lot of problematic shit involved involving gatekeeping and just treating other people very poorly. Oh. Professor, could you remind me who Yamochi is? Oh, president of Nintendo. Okay. Uh, the tea table flipping president. Okay. Just think of like a Steve, a Steve Jobs type mm-hmm. douchebag. Yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, the, the thing about this is that it, it is complicated on both ends. Like, for sure, the, the businessman we've referred to on, on this podcast, the, the uh, clipboard, the, the man in the, in the suit with a clipboard who is a, a boring, cynical man who is flattening things out to make it the most profitable thing. And who um, also thinks he knows more than you. Right. I mean, these are the same sort of clipboard people who you know, in, in 2019, take over websites and think they know how to run them and then instantly destroy them. Right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, or, or you know, but uh, anyway, the 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 thing about this is that that strikes me as interesting is the there is a there's this sort of narrative, especially when you're a, a fan who's looking in and not and I mean, like an individual fan, not someone who is like who would count themselves otaku, who mm-hmm. who at that point are sort of chiming in as some sort of cultural role, right? Like, and, and, and that point, like, whether they're specifically including themselves or not, they would be part of what we might now describe as fandom, right? Like this blob that that has become like a term in, I don't know what you would call it, I don't, academia, fan academia? I'm not sure. But when I say fandom, you both know what I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Um, I'm trying to think of a, a, a Western equivalent of the term, but I can't – nothing is universal. I mean fanboy or fangirl yeah. is probably the closest as far as like a, a implied negative or derogatory aspect of it. That I, kind of like, I kind of think of gamer as kind of like an associate <laughs> with otaku as well, unfortunately. <laughs> kind I, of now it is. I, would yeah. say. I can't even peel back the layers of that word of in gamer, yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I love that the gamers are oppressed, but they should be. That's one of my favorites. And I can't or, speak for like on behalf of you know the people in uh, you know Japanese fans as well. If people in Japan still use otaku like this, or whether one. it's used playfully. If I if we were to illustrate the like sort of negative connotations of, of of otaku, there's another image going around that I will send to PMC now, which is just a crudely drawn angry person in MS Paint where it says I am a gamer, which is like a person but worse. <laughs> and that's, that's more or less what we're talking about. It, when you talk about describing yourself as otaku, it is the sort of person who w- would be putting their interest on display and the interest being like f- almost fanatical and zealous to a degree that is they are proud of but would be it would cause friction in someone who maybe doesn't share the same interest. That, yeah. that would be probably the most clinical way to describe mm-hmm. a, a, an otaku, yeah. right? Like, and they all use this term very proudly to refer to themselves, the founders of Gynex. They often brandish the designation as a cudgel to ward off criticism, and other times they use it as a tool like of self-deprecating humor. But the origins of Gynex date back to the late 1970s in Osaka. 
I went to Osaka over the summer. It's more of a, like a hip town. Compa- this is a generalization. I was only there for a few days. But if you compare it to Tokyo, for example, and bear in mind, a lot of my Tokyo experience was only filtered through Akihabara, so that is its own lens. Right. But Osaka, you know, a younger, you know, a lot of more young people there, less salarymen, a lot of cool restaurants. It's like that hip part of, like, I don't know, maybe like the Greenwich Village of Tokyo. But anyway... In the 1970s Osaka, a group of college students met purely by chance. And in a memoir published later by Yasuhiro Takeda, he wrote, What changed me was a series of encounters, an unbroken procession of chance meetings that thrust me from my young and vigorous but ultimately clueless boyhood and transformed me into the man I am now. There's some problematic language there just because of Gainax's other work, but he's basically saying he met some cool people. And those cool people came together and made some cool shit. It feels like they're taking a, a, a pretty honest uh, uh, interpretation of those events, which is like it was a random happenstance that worked out, and combining it with like a hero's journey narrative, mm-hmm. which is where it's like, uh, okay. <laughs> like, I pulled this from his memoir, and it was the translation. He was very casual and informal in how he talked about things, so it could be part of that. Some of it could be lost in translation. But if you think about 1970s Japan... A lot of the same cultural currents that were swirling around, like in Osaka and Tokyo, were swirling around here as well. People were really into Star Wars, for example. It came out in 1977. Mobile Suit Gundam began airing on Japanese television in 1979. And both works, which are now commercial juggernauts, you know, they captured the hearts of people in Japan just as much as they captured the hearts in America. And this really created a burgeoning fandom. It's really interesting how much, and, and when we get into Gunbuster, we'll talk about it a lot more probably. It's really interesting how much Mech Nations as a project owes to Star Wars, yeah. which is very interesting. Mm-hmm. And you see that too with the Daikon videos as well, which we'll talk about later. But in a lot of ways, if you take a look actually comparing what's going on in the States and what's going on in Japan as well, this ascendancy of like fans turned animators or creatives, creators, like think about what's happening with like Steven Spielberg and George Lucas out with their Super 8 cameras watching Flash Gordon uh, episodes. They're being inspired by similar stuff. Right. That's in the zeitgeist. Not the same exact stuff, but like pulpy science fiction stuff, which will influence their later works as well. Right. And if you take a look at Hideaki Anno and you, talk, you know, compare him to Steven Spielberg, um, like Spielberg, he became enamored with filmmaking at a young age. In his sophomore year of high school, he acquired an 8mm camera and began making amateur films. He was a big movie buff. Ignis, what kind of movies do you think he liked? What kind of shows do you think Anno watched when he was growing up? God. Think about recently, too, what he's made. I, again, am a bad person to ask because I'm just going to say mean things about Hideki Anno. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, uh, he, he watched, like, Crying Breakfast Friends or, like, he watched, like, uh, <laughs> something, like, moody and boring, probably. And, and uh, but maybe not. Actually, maybe he liked super robot stuff. Actually, yeah, well, was I was a, just going to say Godzilla. Yeah. Think about Shin Godzilla yes, and Ultraman. Think about the upcoming Shin Ultraman. All right, all of which is perfectly fitting if you can think oh, about what no. he's doing now. I don't, I don't like to think about Hideki Anno's tastes are actually similar to mine. That uh, bums me out. <laughs> Luke, Lucas, anyone have a good like George Lucas impression? It's oh, like uh, poetry. I've, I've got, it rhymes. Yeah, poetry. It rhymes. If, if it rhymes, it, it's like a poem, and it's a rhythm that way. And you see this like fucking fandom just permeate these. The uh, I don't like it when fans <laughs> enjoy things that I make. When fans enjoy things that I make, that makes it bad. That's an excellent. That's, Lucas impression. That's, the, that's what. That's my opinion of the Force Awakens. Is that fans will love it, which is me being disparaging because fans liking a thing is the worst thing that can happen. 
We should have you try your out your uh, Lucas impression more often. It's not. Good. I didn't know we could do impressions here. I'm, I'm not very good at impressions. I, I'm sorry, I superseded our podcast. No, it's all right. To get on my soapbox about George Lucas being a shit. <laughs> anyway, so if, another example too is Toshio Okada. He was uh, Gainax's first president, also an animator himself and a writer. He left in '92, but. He's probably the most spirited of our group of fellows. Uh, he went to see Star Wars, for example, dressed as Vader. He cosplayed as Char while selling fanzines. And you know what he does now? He writes books on otaku culture. He's a literally a professor on otakuness. Oh, well, we shouldn't laugh because that's just what we're doing. Yeah, that's, that's true. That's just and uh, his colleagues have jokingly referred to him as Oda King. I'm, I think I'm pronouncing that right, but Otaku King, essentially, but yeah. shortened. I mean, seems seems right to me, based off of just that description. Like, mm-hmm. that's that's a dude who's clearly driven by an interest, rather than yeah. some, you know... All, I mean, also money's good, but... Mm-hmm. And so future Gainax members, Toshio Okada, Hiroyuki Yamaga, some of these names we've had heard of before, and I'll touch upon them, uh, Tamaki Akai, Yashuhiro Takeda, and Hideaki Anno traveled in, you know, the same fandoms, the same circles, and they sought out like-minded individuals when they went to college, just like all of us. We all met because we, in, back in middle school, back in high school, we dug the same shit, and we right. eventually crossed paths. Uh, Takeda remarked back then the world was in the middle of a sci-fi craze. And also think about the fact that we're in the late 70s, too. Think about the space race in the 1960s. Think about their own, like, this post-Vietnam optimism as well, even though, of course, it's filtered through the perspective of someone living in Japan. And, uh, yeah, so almost everyone in university in Japan had sci-fi clubs ranging from something very small to something very large. And if you take a look, too, they're all located in Osaka. I'm not going to list all – I have all the colleges up here, but they were all enrolled in some college in Osaka in the late 70s, late 80s. But before we get too far ahead of ourselves, let's backtrack. It's 1976. Pre-Star Wars, uh, Yashuhiro Takeda, then a budding college freshman, attended a local science fiction convention called SatoCon. Uh, Damn. He remarked that people not That's in the, real. That's real as hell. Anyway, keep going. What do you guys associate with uh, conventions? I've been to three anime conventions in my life back in middle school. Cosplay? Cosplay. Largely. Vendor uh, rooms. I am, Vendor rooms. I am a, a con-goer with my partner. My partner's a cosplayer. Mm-hmm. So largely that's what we engage with. You know, going to photo shoots. Yeah. Going to different uh, panels, panels of varying... Yep varying quality and enthusiasm (laughs) (laughs) i think it was largely the same in the 1970s as well as well especially uh on a smaller scale uh people this is takeda here people not in the know might wonder what the heck kind of sci-fi event this was and in true shikoko fashion there were competitions to see who could eat their udon noodles the fastest while in the main hall people were sitting around in circles having lively discussions and which is kind of similar to anime conventions today. I just imagine uh, uh, 70s versions of Japanese Rob Zachney's all there. <laughs> That's That must have been what it was like, right? Anyway. I remember us back in like middle school, like skanking or something, or just like... I was certainly a little bit more outward in my fandom than I was now. I had a Roroni Kenshin shirt, for example. I'm not, as of now, in 2019, wearing a Roroni Kenshin shirt or any anime shirt, for example. I remember, like, Dragon Ball Z Hawaiian shirts. And, we, I, you know, a lot of us wore them very proudly. Yeah, we, yeah. I, I see some but of myself in these founding Gynax members, except I kind of did this at a younger age. Is this, yeah. is this an Ignis Matic subtweet time? Has it finally happened? Is this is this it? Because I definitely still have all this stuff. I might <laughs> I might have our friends, uh, our, our, our we have a mutual friend who had some wall scrolls up in their basement, and uh, I definitely have one Vasha Stampede wall scroll still. I'm, I'm walking through the basement now. Yes. I would see the Kill Bill yeah, poster, exactly Kill Bill poster, Westmore Notch poster. 
Uh, I really like the uh, the ATI Ruby video card I, poster. I, I was moments <laughs> away from bringing up the fucking video card poster. Folks, with the- just, you know, since we're talking about the history of Gynax here, when these folks first met, I think it might be useful to the l- listeners. I first crossed paths with Stephen and Ignis in August 2002 via the same mutual friend we're talking about. Uh, because I met them in high school, and then through them, we did we first meet in a basement. I believe so. It I might rem- have been that basement. I remember I was in that basement. We were all right, back then. We had all the TVs lined up in a row in the basement mm-hmm. where we would play our JRPGs mm-hmm. or watch Separately, our anime. By the way, separately, not, not separately. even the same ones. We'd yeah. be all playing different ones at the same. Occasionally, time. I would throw it on the same episode of Cowboy Bebop, usually, or an episode of Full Metal Panic, or we'd watch Fellowship of the Ring, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was in a conversation with our friend, and he said, "You know, I met not someone at Bandcamp, I believe. It was Bandcamp. Band that's Camp, right." And he, you said he said that you were like really into RPGs. Like, not, well, shit, come on over. That's not yeah. even a meme. That's just fucking true. That's yeah. just true. It's true. That's just fucking true. It's like poetry. It rhymes. Yeah, it's poetry. It's fucking true. Good things that are fun aren't good. I'm sorry. <laughs> Stop now. <laughs> well, grats. You have now permanently introduced your your parody of George Lucas to our podcast. Yeah, right. Yeah. Welcome to our fourth guest. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, it's me, it's George. <laughs> I'm back. I'm here to talk about robots, cartoon robots. Anyway, I'm sorry, Stephen. I wonder what George Lucas, how what George Lucas, what his thoughts are on you know, the mecha, the mecha genre. I'm, 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 I'm blasting him, but you know what? If George, if you're hearing this podcast right now, fucking a, come on to talk about robots. Oh, I'd be so into that. You know what we should do with Evangelion? Though? I wish George Lucas directed this. Evangelion? No, 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 no. <laughs> One hour photos. Think of the Robin Williams mean. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah no. I just... No, I don't. Fuck, no. <laughs> George Lucas is Evangelion. <laughs> All right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Stephen. I have, I have ruined our podcast. No, no. I think it's, it's, finally a, it's adding a fine spice to our podcast. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, Takeda, he went to one of these conventions. That's Sadokan. That's right. The science fiction convention with Udon Noodles and Rob Zachney. <laughs> and it would have been an altogether uneventful, probably enjoyable outing, if not for the meeting that took place later that evening. As the night wore on, the conversations became more intimate, helped no doubt by a liberal amount of sake, I'm assuming. And a friend of Ikeda's introduced him to Toshio Okada on the grounds that the two had a lot of similar interests and would probably hit it off, just like me and PMC. And in those days, Takata remarked, we didn't have the word otaku yet, but my first impression of Okada was... Here's a geek if I've ever seen one. Sure. With his girly long hair and his freakishly excited way of speaking, all I could think of was, this guy is exactly like me. Cool, great. Yeah. Cool guy, it sounds like. <laughs> and so as the months continued, Takeda and Okada continued going to cons and indulging in their hobbies. You know, they were, everyone in this group was a slacker college student. Most of them dropped out because, you know, they hit a pig. I want to once again refer people to the picture of uh, uh, Tagashi in his in his room playing Dragon Quest. Yeah, <laughs> these these creative types, you know, tend to be a, a certain kind of you know. They, it takes all kinds to get ahead, and people need to work together. But for sure, it doesn't surprise me that these sorts of creatives were also non-motivated nerdos who, <laughs> who mostly just wanted to indulge. But anyway, well, anyway, they they, they started hanging out, and this reminds me a lot. Of, remember when we go like mall ratting in yeah, middle school? Sure, of course. And remember, like, we, you know, not me and Ignis personally, but others around us. I'm sure we indulged in it, too, but, like, just the outward displays. I feel like I'm a dictionary describing dancing, but I'm talking about skanking or just we're doing, like, I don't know, fusion dances or, like, fake 
big punches from a shonen sure, or something. Sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. like physical sorts of y- y- like we all sound like fucking aliens describing human <laughs> juvenile yeah. behavior, but I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Well, they would do stuff like that, and they would actually do this at conventions. It sounded like it was a combination of like vaudeville and stand up. But- so, like for an example, a pop culture example, if anyone has has, has seen uh, the what is that Simon Pegg show called? Uh, I'm sorry, I've robbed it from your space. Space, yes. There's a sequence in space where the, all the characters engage in an invisible slow motion gun battle. This is exactly what yes, we're talking about. Yes, yes, is a great example. Oh fuck, that's good. Yeah. So if you, if you're we were wondering what the fuck are these nerds trying to <laughs> to explain? That scene is what we're talking about. That's the sort of behavior these yeah. guys would be doing. Oh, by the way, shout out to Edgar Wright. He's in Death Stranding. <laughs> I haven't right. ran into him yet, but he's in him. <laughs> Sounds right. <laughs> but anyway, so is Junji Ito, which is dope. But anyway, it went well. Takata was so enthused afterwards that, you know, they were hanging out that he vowed, and he was very excited after the first time they put on this, like, stand-up act. I would in no way want to go back to the stand-up act. Just the way these guys talk, it's no, no bueno, as my wife might say. I, mm, I, I, wouldn't want to be, I, I wouldn't want to revisit what I was saying in aim chats in middle school. I, I, I remember right. parts of it. I would not want to. This is not a holier-than-thou situation yeah. as much as it's just it is a true fact about, yeah. about things changing. Is that sometimes you, you go back and you look at a thing and it hurts to look at it. Ouchie. Yeah. We're all in flux. So and, everything's fluid. And, you know, we'll, we might talk about something like that when we get to episode three of Gunbuster. We might, we might experience a thing that, that will make all of us look back and forth and be like, uh-oh. <laughs> I'm going to talk about it when we get to Royal Space Force, but I'll be there soon enough. But anyway, they, they vowed they wanted to host a science fiction convention together, and he took the idea to his local anime club, as you do, but he was shot down by his upperclassmen who felt his goals were too unrealistic. Remember, he just wanted to host a science fiction convention. But despite opposition, he kept at it, and he won over some allies. allies. And with the help of Hiroaki Inui, a future Gynax co-founder, and several other friends, Takeda and company hosted a science fiction convention called The Sci-Fi Show. And this thing, this, this science fiction convention sounds super endearing because really, according to them, they just watched clips from the Apollo 11 space landing and there's a whole bunch of cosplay, which is excellent. <laughs> that owns. That's great. <laughs> and uh, everyone was really happy with how it turned out. Takeda considered his first convention a success. Uh, but he set his sets higher for his next convention, and he craved in something of a larger scale, Daikon 3. In effect, Daikon was the Osaka offshoot of the Nihon Science Fiction Takai Science Fiction Convention, which took place in Tokyo. Now, that convention has been running since 62. This one is on its third iteration. And there's a lot of good-natured and apparently like very childish animosity between the n- two nerd demographics. Think about, you know, natural factions, I guess, that form in... Un- Culture, nerd culture in general. Yeah, Star Trek is better than Star Wars, that type of thing. There is a famous Twitter, or I'm sorry, not Twitter, the other Blue House site, Tumblr. There's a famous Tumblr. I, I actually do not know how real this is, but there is a famous Tumblr fandom combination group called Super Hulock, which is Supernatural, Doctor Who, and Sherlock the Stephen Moffat show. And the premise of this group is that this is obviously, especially of the time where they were more prominent, the like most embarrassing collection of possible (laughs) interests. And they were confrontational in a way that was 
I think performance. I think this was a a largely uh, and you know what people if you're familiar with what I'm talking to you please write in and correct me. I would love to know if I'm just fucking wrong and this was just a sincere person. I would love to know that cuz I wouldn't describe it as like a hilarious performance of, you know, what how fandoms can be, you know, but that's the sort of thing we're talking about where your your identity is based on this this I don't want to say product because that's fucking cynical, but on this narrative yeah. of some kind, right? And and I was super like that in – I mean I am a product of what I consume, of course, like just the works that speak to me intimately. But especially like in middle school and high school and my fandom was at its peak, I would just so – if someone said they didn't like something I liked, that bothered me. That upset me. Well, so I think though what, what we're really talking about there is a, a lack of, of – you know, for for one cultural reason or another, a lack of of tools given for really emotionally dealing with other objective realities, right? Like the that's really what we're talking about when you know the the cultural thing that all of us learned because we all grew up in that same context is that when that conflict arises, what you do is you have a juvenile high school lunchroom yeah. debate about it. But you know what what you learn is as you study you know storytelling and and you know analysis of of uh, you know different you know i say critical analysis and that's a, a vague meaningless term but you learn different um framing methods different mm. critical lenses that you can apply to things and and that tool set helps you learn how to emotionally handle the friction that can arise from cuz what happens when you form an opinion is that you're you're going like oh this image or sound or smell or, or combination of thus elicits this emotional reaction in me. It's probably because of XYZ thing. That means when I see XYZ thing, this emotional reaction is a sincere one. And this is a, a this is why this opinion exists. And so when someone goes like, no, nah, fuck that. You're, you, if you don't have the tool set to go like, well, there's a lot of reasons where that could be the case. <laughs> and so now I'll just move on with my day. It's fine that that person did. It does enjoy the Last Jedi, the best Star Wars film. <laughs> it is pretty good. Um, and so uh, w- you know that sort of nerd thing has become like canonical mm-hmm. because of the the particular things that nerd quote unquote culture is is comprised of, which is a combination of a sort of. Uh, a quote unquote imagined objective reality within this fictional piece uh, uh, existing at the same time as it being a fictional piece and and these two different framings coming into conflict create that sort of cultural place where mm-hmm. some people prefer the manga and some people prefer the anime and some people prefer Star Wars and some people prefer Star Trek right like it's 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 you know it, it it's one of those things that isn't intentional when you're telling a type of story, you're, but it, it arises when in our culture there are lots of stories and those stories are valuable. So mm-hmm. those that value means that people will become warriors, Klingon warriors for some of these narrative ideas. And, and that's maybe not the healthiest on Twitter. Get, get out of my mentions. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, uh, uh, I don't mean to supersede our conversation oh, about no, no. next year. But that that seems right, okay, right? Yeah, I, I, didn't, on. I didn't just go off about nothing for this is our other our subtitle for the podcast is Ignis Maddox goes off about nothing for fifteen minutes. Podcast about nothing. Yeah. But anyway, the Osaka natives felt like they bristled at their elitism of their Tokyo oh, counterparts. And it was Osaka Tokyo shit too. Yeah. Oh fuck. Yeah. So yeah, this is layers then when it comes mm-hmm. to that sort of cultural sort of reaction between these two cons. Yeah, but they were super psyched about Daikon. The name Daikon is a play on the way Osaka is written in Japanese. So the kanji for O 
in Osaka means big, but can also be pronounced as dai. And kan refers to convention. A daikon is also apparently a play on daikon with a K, which is a radish used in Japanese cuisine. A radishes play a pretty big role in Japanese culture sometimes just because radish spirits, they're going to spirit away here, but also lots of other shit as well. You'll find them throughout Japanese video games as signifiers for something or signifiers for nothing. They just like radishes. Right. I mean, it's also, you could kind of compare it to maybe with less like stereotypical weight but like a potato mm-hmm, yeah. for certain cultures like it's just a, a starchy sort of nothing thing that, mm-hmm. that can stand in for lots of either like a easy accessible sort of but not flavorful thing or like a life-giving sort of yeah uh, it, it it floats between those and then it's also you know pmc uh, uh i think it's it's interesting how much uh, uh, there seems to be a an emphasis on wordplay when it comes to uh, wordplay is good, and I also think wordplay too. Like sometimes when you're just trying to plan things and like get people interested in something, you know, this is like why so many like businesses, you know, will often invoke like a little bit of wordplay, right? Because it's just like, haha, it kind of you know clues yeah. you in. Wordplay is good. Wordplay Carry on. is good. Wordplay is good at that. Anyway, so Takeda began putting a team together. So he started securing sponsorships. I've never put on a convention before, but you know. I've, I've tried to set up, like, school events, and it takes some time. You have to get all the pieces together. You have to get a group of committed individuals who want to follow this through to the end. But he formed an executive committee, and he tried to drum up a lot of noise about this convention. And once they secured where they're going to host the convention, they needed an opening film. And this is where Gainax was really born. Okada, remember, Okada's Takeda's close friend, knew a guy with some animation shops, and he put his name forward, uh, Nagayama. And he, Nagayama swam in the same cultural currents as everyone else, so he knew a guy too. So one fateful day, he invited Takeda to Solaris, sci-fi cafe, very appropriate, Neat. in Kyoto to meet Hiroyuki Yamaga and Hideaki Anno, two enthusiast fans of his. They were going to the same college, I believe it was Osaka of Arts, they met each other in 1980, so we're now in the 80s, and they were friends previously. They, they, the two of them were friends, and they met with Takeda at the cafe. And Takeda approached them about you know, making some animation. And Takeda sums up this meeting best. I had very little interest in anime back then, so I wasn't expecting anything spectacular. When I was introduced to Ano, I said something like, They say you can make anime. What kind of stuff can you do? At this, he whipped out a pad of accounting paper and started drawing. After a bit, he held up the pad and flipped the pages rapidly. A power suit ran across the paper. So he basically did a little doodle, but apparently it was very impressive. And I've seen Gainax's animation before. I kind of buy it. I mean, those dudes, no matter what you think about them, they can fucking draw some shit. I, I just pictured when you were telling that story in my head, just uh, uh, Unit 2 just flipping forward onto the battleship he just drew real quick. That's probably what That's usually my go-to Ava moment if I'm thinking like spectacular action. There's right. a few other ones, but that one in particular is the one that usually plays in my head. Right. But anyway, this was actually all dramatized in a J-drama, which I really wanted to watch, but I could not find. It was streaming in the U.S. for a while, but it's no longer streaming. It's called Blue Blazes. It's based on the manga, a manga of the same name, which chronicles this early coming together. You can find clips online. It's fucking hysterical, especially if you know just the culture surrounding this shit. Like, Ano's Gendo in the clip, and he's, like, stone cold. And just the other, like, well, someone's wearing a fedora, naturally, and it's just a cavalcade of interesting folks. I, I apologize for this, because this is, yet again, another diversion, but Blue Blazes just makes me think of Nova and Marvel vs. Capcom 3, because Blue Blazes was a thing Nova would say a lot when he wants. He'd say, Blue Blazes, I'm awesome. And I'm just, like, thinking about fucking 
uh, uh, javelins and yeah, and power of the power, Nova Force, power, yeah. Of the, yeah. power of the Nova, power of the Nova, power of the Nova. Yeah, <laughs> it's anyway. But this is all played up in exaggerated fashion, and you know, was essentially you know melodrama soap opera. So when he sees uh, Anno like flip through the pages, he's like starstruck, and he like falls off his chair in dramatic fashion. But it's very funny. I would really actually like to see it. I kind of, I, I honestly tried to find a copy I, of it. I've seen, I believe, some gifts of it, and my impression of it is it's very fun. Yeah, it, it's it like like. You know, to some degree, Gunbuster, Gusbusters, Gunbuster, you know, it's very, it wears its emotions on sleeve. But anyway, at that point, Takeda knew that he wanted the opening film to be animated because, you know, they could just watch fucking Apollo 11 shit instead. But he wanted it to be animated. So his team got to work. They met Tamaki Akai, another Osaka University of Arts student, a little later. Uh, He was less enthused about joining the team, but he's like, I might get paid. And hey, it's better than studying. So he joined the ragtag group of, you know, burgeoning artists so at this point and you, you know this is probably just reflective of the culture at the time like this is a group of all dudes right all dudes this is just dudes all the way yeah. down okay yeah. all right unfortunately yeah Anna was confident in his prowess as an illustrator, but he never worked with cells before. You guys know what cells are, right? Sure, yeah. yeah translucent sheets, you could overlay them too. Really that, create vivid backgrounds and foregrounds. Right, that's how you would create the uh, sort of layering that would mm-hmm. add to the... This is another word we use a lot if you go back and we pronounce it different ways every time. Verisimilitude. Verisimilitude. And cells are expensive, though. Then and now. Especially now, actually. There's a reason why everything is done on a computer now. Yeah. But back in those days, computers weren't as computers couldn't do this shit, so they had to do it all by hand. But cells were too expensive too, because they're you know they're poor college boys. So they went to a hobby shop and bought a roll of cheap vinyl sheets, and it wasn't easy because the vinyl was of a lesser quality. But they, they apparently they made do. And so the other person, Okada, they worked out of his family house. Okada's family seems pretty well off because. Their house also doubled as a factory for their business, Okada Embroidering. So they just worked out of there full-time on the opening animation. They said, fuck school, mechs, or just nerd shit. Understandable. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a sentiment we could all relate to. Uh, their roles remained fluid throughout. They all helped out where they could. But if, you, if I had to give them titles, Okada's the producer. Yamaga, who we'll talk about, because we've encountered him before, uh, director. Akai, character animator, and Ano is the mech designer. But these are all loose terms. It's interesting to me as someone who would have described themselves as like fluent in this history. Uh, it, now I, I feel foolish because like I really didn't know how integral Ano was mm-hmm. to, to this whole thing. Like, yeah. He would bounce back and forth because his rise was a little more, not ascendant, but he did some other shit when other people were still busy with like school stuff. Right. It's interesting, and it would explain some of his, his quirkier appearances in, in the other stuff, specifically Fully Cooly. Yeah. In any way. So it's in April 1981, and they began production on line art and began coloring the cells in June. Uh, they were working right up until the morning of the convention, but they finished, and... By all accounts, it was very well received. And as cliche as it might sound, you know, I hate the term, it was a love letter to blank, but Daikon 3 was like a love letter to all the nerd stuff they really like. It's very much a, it's a great intro to an event, which yeah. is what they needed it to be. Yeah. And, and so for that, it, it is a, it is like successful. It makes it sound like I'm disparaging it, but it, it really is accomplishing exactly what it sets it out to do. It still looks good. I mean, it's an amateur work. Yeah, but it's cool. It's, it's cool it's as cool. hell. Oh, yeah. No, I I really like the Daikon 3 opening. People, it was super dope. It is a tradition to open Otakon with the, yeah. the, the, the Otaku video and Daikon intros. So. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah. Cool. But anyway, Godzilla, Gundam, Star Wars, Star Trek, and the space battleship Yamoto. So and everything that was really popular in the late 70s made an appearance. 
This is funny. Tezuku of Astro Boy fame, he attended the convention. Uh, he didn't make it to the opening ceremony. Uh, Osama Tezuka? Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, but he missed the animation, but they were all like having a party that night, and he met everyone. Uh, he asked to see the animation, and they nervously, but you know, excitedly, they showed him what they were spent months working on. And he was impressed, and after watching the sequence, he po- reportedly commented, Well, there certainly were a lot of characters in the film. Hmm, a lot of characters. However, there were also some that weren't in the film. And at first, they didn't know what he was referring to, but they didn't include any of uh, Tezuka's characters. Like Astro oh. Boy. But he, he, didn't, he wasn't pissed, because they have another run-in later. Those dumb bastards. Yeah. I would have felt like such a shithead yeah. when Osama Tezuka's like, hey, where's Astro Boy, you dumb bastard? <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, shit, you're right. Yeah. I suck, Osama Tezuka, you're right. They made up for that in Daikon 4, however. But anyway, in order to recoup the production costs, and this is super interesting to, like, to animation history, they sold videos and 8mm reels of the film to fans at the convention because they wanted to pull themselves out of debt. This arguably is the first OVA, by definition. I hate to draw lines in the sand, but it's the first animated thing produced independently just for that specific market. The first most people cite is Mamoru Oshii's Dallas. That came out in 1983. But so if you want to technically, I mean, most people, that's the, his, the canonical, I guess, first OVA, but... By all accounts, this is a progenitor to it, at least. Now that you've mentioned Oshii, someone listening at home has marked their final square at uh, Japanese mecha creator Bingo and, <laughs> and have now won their prize. I was wondering if Oshii would come up. I was looking at some pictures of Oshii recently. I love his little beanie thing that he wears. I'm not sure if it's actually a beanie, but if I had hair, I would definitely rock that. Do you think that's a thing? Like, um, uh, There's a, a story in the, the Lord of the Rings appendices of one of the, the, one of the directors involved had this, this very ratty... like like upholstered office chair that he would sit in out on shoots when they're, oh, they're sitting man. in New Zealand and shit and it would be helicoptered in and Billy Boyd who plays Pippin tells this great story about how he's like oh I always saw it and it was like oh this must be like the chair he, he sat in in his first movie or whatever and so one day I walked up and asked and, and he was like oh no one of the days they just offered me a chair and I said that looks comfortable so this is just a chair I've been sitting in. I remember that appendices extra, too. <laughs> it's, it's, I would watch the shit out of those, actually I, alongside Ava when I was off from school. Anytime I see like a, a an artist with some kind of like wearing some kind of affectation. Yeah, like and, Miyazaki's, um, what's, um, the word escapes me. You're an artist, wear a smock, smock. Yeah, smock or some, something. I always think, I wonder if it either has some kind of, some kind of meaning or if it is just arbitrary. Like yeah. that fucking yeah. chair. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, so Daikon 3 happened. All right, it was a big success all around, but afterwards, you know, unfortunately, as this happens, real life, you know, started to kick their ass. Yeah. Uh, they, they were floundering in their academics because, you know, they're drawing hand, you know, they're drawing by hand cells of animation. They're doing mecha shit. Yeah. And if he wanted to continue with his studies, Takeda would have to repeat his sophomore year again. So you could see he was floundering for his academics for a while. His professors told him that he would probably would not be able to graduate. So, you know, school was not in no one's mind, but Takeda dropped out. He took the L. And unfortunately, began drinking heavily afterwards. Okada, though, was a little more inspired after Daikon 3. Uh, spurred by the success of the dealer's room, as Mary made some money selling those tapes, he was planning to open a science fiction shop, and he asked Takeda to help him out. So he came to Takeda. Takeda reluctantly came on board. He wasn't really planning. This is not the way his life was planning to go. And General Products, the name of the 
store was apparently Jap- Japan's first sci-fi specialty store. General well, products. In English, though? Yeah, because okay. the, the name came from Larry Niven's science fiction novel, Ringworld. And the only uh, reason I know about Ringworld is, I'm looking at PMC here, did you read Ringworld? I did read... Ringworld is one of those books that needs to have like an edited version, because the science fiction ideas in Ringworld are very, very cool, and help inspire things like Halo. The characters are the most like sexist '70s white guy bullshit you can. I, I was going to say there's a whole era of science fiction writing that is considered like canonical that needs some kind of like like N.K. Jemisin. Yeah. Like, 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 let, like, let's get like a riff tracks. Or, oh no, really? For novels, yeah. Somehow, like, like. <laughs> Ringworld is a perfect example of that. The science fiction ideas of like the abandoned Ringworld, super, super cool, cool. super cool. Hell yeah. The like prime like one like the primary character is like a dude who's like ancient but still on his prime and then like he meets like the daughter of his former lover mm-hmm, sure and like no, you can right. just see where it goes yeah from there, mm-hmm, so. yeah sure what's that uh what's uh 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 oh gosh oh god what's the one with the man from Mars who's Messiah and fucks everyone oh what's that um one? John Carter from Mars. not John Carter <laughs> <laughs> I mean that's also true uh, stra- Stranger in a Strange Land yeah Stranger in a Strange Land that, that book sucks that- <laughs> <laughs> dog that book sucks oh man we got some great hot takes for this guy in <laughs> history this owns but as I was doing the history and it's like alright let's say if I was alright let's say you know I was I came up with this name for my science fiction store. I was reading the Similarillion one night, and I came up. It came up with this great name, science fiction store. Like general products, <laughs> general like, products. It's so good. But if it's in English, then that uh, that tracks. I, that I think still, it's in English. But yeah. yeah. But or rather uh, presented. I, I forget how this works because I do not speak or know how to read Japanese. But I guess presented in katakana mm-hmm. is how it would be read yeah. in English that way, mm-hmm. in the way that Ota in gunbuster is known as the english word coach yeah. and that's would be his and the fact that it's the english word coach is is weird for us but would be a like you know if if is, is uh i i can't think of an equivalent example but if if a character in a movie let's say hawkeye was named a, the japanese term for like arrow or something very like nonchalant right yeah, it would yeah. seem sound odd to us but in to us dumb westerners it'd be like wow cool what cool name mm-hmm. cool cool robot and so, you know, starting his own business, he needs some cash. I mean, he sold some OVAs, but that's not enough to open a shop. No. But Mario Okada's family's pretty well off, so they help foot the bill. And he, in effect, the store at the time became a subsidiary of Okada Embroidering. And so General Products opened in February 1982. The opening, like the Daikon 3, was a success. And apparently business remained pretty steady because there was a burgeoning market for this stuff. Like the people had money. Remember, it's also the 1980s, so people had cash to burn as well, the beginning of that economic upswing. That's right. And uh, Takeda remembered this period fondly. He remarked that General Products functioned both as a hangout for Daikon 3 veterans and as a place to find potential recruits. You know, you always hear these stories about the writers, for example, like, uh, you know, James Joyce hanging out at a Parisian cafe with all his writerly friends. This is almost like the nerd animation equivalent, almost. And it's even it sounds very... You know, I was like, I kind of wish I could be a fly on that wall, right? Or or Tolkien and his his pre World War One buddies, like like uh, uh, the the who the the lion C S Lewis, C S Lewis, that man, mm-hmm. yeah, that guy, that shit, yeah. And so you know, they're all hanging out at the time. The the group is expanding. Do you want to go on a C S Lewis? Lewis no, tangent? no. I just I I was like the the, the next step I was going to take was all those fuck parties that the sci fi writers <laughs> of the seventies yeah, all went to for yeah. some reason. But anyway, let's move on. I thought we were talking about Jarrah Tolkien fuckfest. We are we are going to literally burn away all of our science fiction fans <laughs> at this point. 
So anyway, meanwhile, things were happening for the rest of the Daikon 3 crew. Uh, Studio New, a design studio founded in 1974, they were there and they saw Daikon 3 and they reached out about securing some new talent for an upcoming project. So they, uh, so they came to Ano, Akai, and Yamaga and, they, and as a result, uh, the three of them, they moved to Tokyo and they worked on Super Dimensional Fortress Macross in 1982 as animators. Oh, oh mm. so that's Macross. their yeah first taste of Mecca, and this was a, this very formative opportunity for everyone involved. Well, not everyone. Ana honed his skills as an illustrator and a Mecca designer. Yamaga learned a lot about directing from Noboru, Noboru Ishiguro. Excuse me, there, Ishiguro, if you're listening, a legend in the industry, best known for Space Battleship Yamato, Macross, and later. Legend of the Galactic Heroes. Okay, yeah. So some cool shit. Big deal, especially for some of the stuff we'll be talking about in Godbuster, yeah. for sure. And But Akai, the third guy, he, uh, he felt that really, his talents really weren't being put to use, so he went back to Osako, Osako, Osaka before Ano and Yamaga. But anyway, Daikon 3, big success. Uh, Takeda and everyone else knew they had to return for Daikon 5 and one-up themselves. Reach for the top. As I point to the heavens. Yes. If Daikon 3 anime had been handcrafted, this is his words, then Daikon 4's animation was an industrial production. So, you know, they had a lot more money, they had a lot more talent and cash. Everything was much more professional this time around. They didn't work out of Okada's parents' house. The team rented their own studio. They apparently worked grueling hours. I don't know how you make... Unfortunately, I don't know how you make animation in Japan without uh, working grueling hours. I heard an anecdote, too, about someone who... You know, a critic and a historian of the industry basically saying, yeah, a lot of young, young people get involved. They really love anime. Early 20s, they, you know, basically, metaphorically and unfortunately, probably, actually, you know, kill themselves working for like a decade. And then they end up moving back home and like becoming a farmer or something. That's a bit of a generalization, but it's a grueling workhouse sometimes. Right. I mean, it's, it's animation, especially at that time, it w- would not be possible without an enormous effort from the people creating it. And yeah. Unfortunately, that largely hinges on money people t- counting on uh, naive passion. Yeah, and the, none of these studios have blanked. Like, Hayao Miyazaki occasionally has a blank check. That's it. No one else has a blank che- check in the animation industry. Even no. though it might look pretty, and like, wow, they must have a lot of money. They never have as much money. And the hours there, I very much doubt if any of these um, studios are unionized. I don't even know union culture in Japan. Just stereotypically, I can't imagine it's very powerful at all but anyway they're working they're gru- working grueling hours i think in general not to interrupt no, but no. To, 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 to piggyback off of what you're saying in general most things have less money than it appears yeah. i mean unless unless you see that fucking disney logo come on first That's like true almost certainly the thing you're watching had less money than they needed yeah to, to do what they wanted to and do. to be honest usually when they do have that blank check it usually doesn't turn out well sometimes that not the work hours but the money those constraints can work as an editing force too, or force you to work creatively around certain things. Sometimes, when you have a blank check, you you end up with Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. That's true. And Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace is a movie that's no fun, which is why it's great. I'm George Lucas, and I hate things that are fun for the audience. I hope our fans really. I really want. I George hope they Lucas. hate it. No, so I, I hope, don't. No, I hope they. No, I hope they like it. I, to come <laughs> I mean, look. In my opinion, Phantom Menace gave us the Phantom Menace PS One speed run. Yes, <laughs> which is art, and I recommend watching. This is not a cul-de-sac. We will take here. This is yet another thing that will shoot our podcast out of the sky. But Star Wars Episode One, the Phantom Menace, the is the least bad of the prequel. Yes. Should, yes. Yeah. Hundred percent. Don't have. Actually, me. had a conversation with. I that think about that's that. right. Yeah. I think it, it is. I the, haven't seen those films in years, but like, I think that's right. I think that's. I Episode Two is unwatchable episode two is you know, it's the worst yes it, yeah, I would, yeah, yeah. Yes. and and episode three is like 
the closest thing I would put to actively bad, but also watchable. Like it's it's like watchable if you yeah. ignore everything that's like legit, like actually happening in it, and, and kind of watch the the visuals. And it is a anyway. I've burned our podcast. I actually kind of want to talk. We'll talk about. Are we going to do a Star Wars pod with Episode Nine? We did one for Avengers. Well, when, when we open our our Patreon, you yeah. Know? yeah. <laughs> I I just want to say, I mean. Star Wars has mechs. Star That's Wars true. is a mecha franchise. It does. Yeah. It is, it is not negotiable. They're, they're not the ones I like. They're Rob Zaki and Sackney Stompy mechs, but they are mechs yeah, nonetheless. Clearly. And, you know, Star Wars appears in Daikon 4. Anyway, they work grueling hours. No air conditioning. That scares me the most. I, I, Yikes. I, hate, I, hate, I, like, I like being cold. That's why, among many other reasons, I hate global warming for many reasons, of course, but I like cold weather, and that cold weather is, you know, slipping through my fingers sometimes. Yes. But I can't imagine working long hours without air conditioning. But anyway, they finished Nick of Time like before, just in the Nick of Time, uh, up into the morning, the convention. Again, they pulled it off. Uh, it looked like a professional production. You guys watched Icon 4? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I've mm-hmm. seen it before, before we had... Uh- yeah. Uh, the animation is sharper, scope is larger, looks way better in motion than Daikon 3. Uh, characters are more sexualized, which is, you know... Mm. I was going to say, that's where you're going to start to see... You know, we're, we're going to have to talk about it, but uh, that's where you're going to start to see the stuff that Gynex would specifically become famous for. Yeah. And, and to the point where it would be advertised as a, as a thing. You mm-hmm. know, we're going to discuss it when it comes to OVAs and the, like, structural sort of... Uh, uh, things you would expect when you make that what what like sixty nine ninety five purchase at the time yeah in yen so like sixty nine thousand yen or whatever um but it, it's you know we see some jiggle we yeah. see some you know that the the bunny girl outfit is a little bit less like there's a sort of uh when it comes to like the presentation of of the few I hate I hate this this is gonna suck coming out of Ignis Maddox's mouth now I know I hate a first off whenever I'm take whenever I'm watching. <laughs> Whenever I'm watching, my wife will always walk in at that time. Great. Like, what are you watching? Like, oh, did, oh, did she went. see? Did she see young Freud's introduction? <laughs> she did. did. <laughs> I mm, I can't. I'll save it for the yeah. next episode. But in any case, <laughs> the thing I wanted to talk about was that when it comes to the presentation of of the human form, when we're talking about dudes, ladies, or others, the the thing of, is, is that there is a is a platonic argument for presenting human form and appreciating the, the human form in whatever regard that is, whether that's sexual, whether that's just aesthetic, whether that's what have you. There's an argument for this thing and it being a value-neutral thing, right? So, like, there is an artistic argument for 40s pinup, you know? Like, a, a thing that would be regarded as, as sort of... I don't want to say trashy, but like sultry or exoticized or not, you know, necessarily appropriate for all audiences sort of thing. There's there's an argument for that sort of thing. And I think that when you when you come to popular media and that being presented in popular media, there's a pretty clear sort of like. I don't want to say like. Hill, we're all falling down. (laughs) As as things progress, I'm picturing Sam Porter bridges <laughs> stacked with a bunch of boxes and just falling. Well, so I'm thinking of something like Urusai Yatsura, yeah, right, where um, the the concept is like a normal ass dude lives with an outrageous alien woman, and like part of it is that she's wearing this like leopard bikini, and and it's like outrageous that she's wearing this leopard bikini. But I also like. If you if you asked me to look at that image and, and it's like, is this a sexual image? I'd be like, 
No. Like, not not really, right? Because it's just a, a, a mostly naked woman. And yeah. there isn't necessarily anything inherently sexual about that. And, like, th- that sort of pinup is kind of the same feel I get from these Daikon shorts a little bit. Where, like, there's definitely, like, a cheekiness, mm-hmm. right? A sort of, like, like, well, it's all fun in it. You know, sort of situation. Um, but... It's it's very clear how this cheekiness kind of opened the door for uh, uh, let's I, I in my head I did some wordplay because uh, I'm thinking of PMC's Code Geass uh, uh, Twitter thread of cheekiness when it comes to cheekiness. Uh, what what's the thing we said? Oh, cheeks not. Oh, well, the cheeks are cheeks. Cheeks are cheeks. Yeah, yeah. the eyes are say, eyes, and the cheeks are cheeks. For some reason, I was going to say cheeks aren't checks. I don't know. That's what came <laughs> cheeks, to mind. The cheeks aren't checks either. <laughs> yeah. But in any case, there is the you know Gynex was definitely before apparently Gynex was the thing they were already sort of presenting themselves as the the ones who will go here, right? <laughs> Not everyone gets a blank check, but they do get blank cheeks. <laughs> hey! Episode title: um, Either that or George Lucas's Evangelion. <laughs> I think are the two runners up. Like for poetry right now. rhymes. <laughs> have I ever? Uh, is, how's my George? Have I ever told you about the hedgehog's dilemma? Yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've come back from just checking the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they told me to make Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Uh, Welcome to our uh, making fun of George Lucas podcast. <laughs> yeah. There's a really good fan art you can do. I'm sure this was done before with Lucas as uh, uh, Gendo with the steepled fingers. Oh, excellent! That That's fucking great, actually. Anyway, back to Daikon 4. Um, anyway, big success. Uh, I also like the synth pop song that accompanied the action. I thought that was cool. Very 80s, as you know, it was made in the 80s. And after the success of Daikon 4, the team wanted to transition out of the amateur sphere. Okada remembers his staff wanted to become professionals. Most of them have failed out of college by that point. They quit their, you know, a lot of their other jobs. And, uh, you know, they wanted to go to Tokyo to become professional filmmakers. I do want to... One, one caveat I will put to this whole spiel, where the purpose of which was to sort of draw a line between uh, the, the sort of sexualization that was happening in the early Daikons and this, the sort of thing that we would now call fan service now. An asterisk I want to put is that the fact that this is, like, entirely dudes should paint your yeah. lens on how you take this. Yeah. I, I do want to highlight that. Like, that makes it different. Yeah, right? and we'll talk about that. Thre- Whenever we touch upon Gynax, to be honest, that's a big thing we're going to have to talk about. Is, is explicitly how they are they are taking this image and selling it, right? That's it's- And they really knew it, too. We'll talk about this later, but Gynax made a lot of their money, too, with, like, I, I can't really describe it otherwise, like, pervy computer games. Yeah, like softcore. Yeah. yeah, totally, for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where that's where the money was. That's where the oil was. I mean, they made a lot of money through animation too, but they also did a lot of side stuff as well. I mean, I I think people probably wouldn't be surprised to learn how much DNA of porn is in all the anime you like. You know, it's, there's it's, it's 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 baked into it. It's it, you know the the most famous mecha example I can think of is the the artist who who works on Full Metal Panic got their start in hentai doujinshi. Yeah, same and with like, the Helsing. Uh... Well, and and you know when you when you read Full Metal Panic, like you can tell yeah. if if you know. Well, we'll maybe talk about I just later too. myself, but <laughs> if if you're familiar with any hentai, you know, stylings, you can you can see it. But even too, like even the Tamer OVAs as well. There's a lot of TNA in those as well. Even like it doesn't even escape like Gundam, O Eight, the Mess Team, Go Back to, or even as recent as the origin it's still not too well so like this is kind of what i was alluding to when i was talking about how 
the format in which you would receive these things would almost kind of create a expectation mm-hmm. in what you'd be getting, right? Yeah. So, like, to to paint it in a different example, so like you go, you're you're 1980s man or gal or other, and you're you're choosing to go see a film, and this film is is RoboCop, and it is an 80s action film that is rated R. And when you go see a rated R 80s action film, there are a couple of things that you can expect pretty safely. One of those things is drugs, drug lords. Another one of those things is horrible violence. And the third one of those things is titty. Yeah. Like, titty will appear. And and you could... I, I don't think the people who are making the film would, would put it this way. But you could argue that, that part of the product that you are choosing to receive... Part of the appeal of it is the possibility of this element, mm-hmm. right? And and I think it's fair to say that for a while, especially J- Japanese animated shows in particular, had a higher chance of this sort of material when it comes to, like, animation in particular. Yeah, it's also why I have... <laughs> I can rarely, I can rarely recommend anime to someone without a little asterisk up here. If you are not, if you do not have the tool set to engage with some of the things that are intrinsic to the form, and this is me being extremely clinical and way too fair to anime, then you're just going to run into things that are. That's why you can't recommend any anime to your parents. Yeah, if you have parents that are are boomers and, and are not a specific kind of nerd, like it's it's just not going to work. It's it really is the cliche and the blandishment Studio Ghibli or bust really at that point to a certain degree. I can safely recommend very few anime like something like Nausicaa, for example, to someone else and be confident that you know there's no. You know, dark shit that's going to pop up. Kinda. Yeah, dark or just like, and like you know, a lot of times this gets hand waved as like a, oh, culture's different sort of shit, and yeah. it's like it's not that different, yeah. <laughs> not that different, dog. Like, because you could find cultural equivalents too, like this in the similar cultural currents, just in different spheres in the U.S. as well. It, you know, it's like uh, like car culture too in the 1970s, 1980s, like you know, cars and girls, things like that. I want to be clear here. Also, I am not necessarily being like I'm not condemning titty like yeah i'm also not trying to de-sex this either like, i got right. a whole thing in my head i was going through like how am i going to talk about fan service here but well so th- that's that's why i'm bringing it up because i i think there's a pretty clear line between the stuff will be like obviously as it goes on in in episode two in particular it gets like way more egregious in, yeah. in what what we see but like in episode one of gumbuster it's fine it's fine it's like more jiggle than titties actually do but yeah. like you know, if you were wearing an aerobic outfit without support and you were doing jump rope, yeah, it feels incidental and not, like, sexual yeah. in that way. It, it's different in the bath scene in episode two a little bit because – especially because of the, like, coding. But we'll get there. Yeah. And, and in any case, though, it, it's – I wanted to specifically highlight how much the uh, the f- female sexual form – is and I and you know I before I was talking about how it doesn't necessarily need to be sexual, but in this case they are clearly angling it that way. Yeah, and you is, see you see it too in the Japanese market. I'm not giving these people a pass too, but sometimes it's like I'm not. I, I can't put myself in the headspace of like a company in 2019. But you see with like a lot of game companies too, like we could exist as this company and we have to like placate this very hyper specific demographic, or we just won't exist anymore because people won't buy our shit. Right. Well, I mean, and the thing that I, I just want to highlight, cause I, I, I definitely want us to remember it when we're talking about Gunbuster is it, because here we're talking about, you know, and, and I don't mean this in specific, but this is kind of how to frame it. We're talking about dudes who are selling like, you know, like 
edgy magazines, yeah. basically the equivalent yeah, of, right, exactly. at the time. Um, and, like, there is a... There's a difference between this and then later when we get to Gunbuster, where we're we're telling a story and the like perspective is one that none of the creators share at all, and and it's very curious to me what the goal was there, and and that's why I want to like you know this particular example, uh, and I'll talk about it more in the next episode when we discuss Gunbuster. I I didn't watch it with my partner and I regret it. I I really wish I had a more feminine perspective on how some of this it, like lands because it's very much a Ender's game coming of, of, of age story that is about being like, you know, inadequate and is from the perspective of a girl, but has nothing to do with. And in fact, she has like an enormous crush on a, uh, like on a classmate in a way that's like, if we're going to talk about Suzaku, like I have to be fair. Cause this is like, Oh Yeah. I put that in my notes. Way more explicit. Yeah. Way, way, way more explicitly. It's, a big it's coded crush. right into the uh, animation too, as well. It's great, but in any case, when I wanted to really highlight, like these are dudes who know what they're doing when yeah. it comes to this, and that's kind of a bummer. Yeah. But you know, it's it's one of those things that's difficult to to parse because it's not like when I. I, young Ignis Maddox decided to watch Fooly Cooly. I was going in like, I hope these guys have dubious understandings of their own sexuality, and therefore the the presentation of of, of femininity and and masculinity that I'm receiving here isn't like super duper flawed. Like I, I I'm you know I don't have those those tool sets. So if it if it, it you know, like sparked whatever sparked in Ignis Maddox to create whatever weird hermit monstrosity you see before you, like that's. Uh, is it, should we excise some of that shit or is there some value there you know i don't want to barack obama centrism i'm not going to decide if it's pork roll or taylor ham yeah it's uh, really hard to quantify this shit too even though mentally sometimes when i'm just reviewing my notes i sometimes try to quantify like what i would keep and what i would not right but we'll talk about that yeah i mean it's it's it's, it's, it's as long as this podcast continues, we're going to encounter it a lot. So, and we already have to a certain degree. We talked about it with Code Geass as well. Yeah, Code Geass, or, or or this sort of like vacuum version of it that was in the Pat Labor series. Where, yeah, like I actually one of the things I was going to say about Noriko when when we discussed her, I do not think we would have a Noriko without a main character of Pat Labor, Noah. No. I don't think we would have Holland, but we're, actually, yeah. there's, there's a connection there. We'll talk. about. Yeah, I figured as much. There's there is a lot of of DNA there. I detected. This is interesting. I didn't know about this. So during this, what I'll dub the interregnum period before... Awesome. After, after, yeah. <laughs> I'm a, a history buff, as you can tell. Uh, Bruce just turned over from Minnesota. <laughs> like, huh? Oh, the English Civil War? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. The, uh, no, no. In, uh, Daikon 4 and the official founding of Gainax, there was a group... Because remember, they, there were people working out of the shop, and then there were people working in the convention, too. And they were all like making these like cool grassroots projects. And there's this group called Daikon Film... And they kept making films for a little while, and they were all apparently live action and heavily inspired by kaiju and Super Sentai properties. Awesome. I would really love to get my hands on some of these, too, and just like check them out with you guys. I couldn't find any copies of I them. I wonder if they're lost media. Some I, of this stuff ends up being lost yeah. media. Yeah, and all this falls under the tokusatsu label, too, which just means it uses a lot of special effects. Tokusatsu would, in, in the, the shorthand for it now, if you said tokusatsu, people would understand that to mean... Super Sentai shows, which yeah. is to say, like, Kamen Rider and uh, Super Sentai shows like Gokaiser or what have you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have these... Or Ultraman. You know. Yeah, Ultraman. 
they're working at General Products. They're selling uh, merch too. We'll talk about the merch soon enough. But they're also making fan films, and apparently there's some tension at the store. Uh, some of the employees thought Okada was slacking off and shirking his responsibilities, which is actually probably true. But he was also working clandestinely with Yamaga on another project. Meanwhile, okay, get ready. Meanwhile, Ano is in Tokyo trying to make a name for himself in the animation world. All right, oh, it's, it's the summer of 1983. Uh, Hayao Miyazaki, uh, who was then 42 years old, which it sounds like a veteran of the industry, but in the Japanese industries, it's still like early days, so to speak. At this point, he's only directed one feature film himself. Anyone? Oh, shit. It's a good one. Oh, fuck. It's not, it's not Cagliostro, mm-hmm. is it? Fuck, yeah. Completely Castle by himself. Cagliostro. He worked on a lot of TV. TV, TV, TV. By the way, if anyone asks you what the best James Bond movie is, you look them dead in the eye and you tell them Castle of Cagliostro. It is the a only great answer. film. Oh, man, that car chase. And so he was 42 years old. Uh, this Ghibli was not yet founded either. And he was working, just struggling to complete his first original feature-length film. Is this History of Garnax the plot of The Irishman? Have you seen The Irishman? No, I was going to say. No. I, was like, well, that's a really- I shouldn't say fuck no, because I, I, I'm going to be painted as the Scorsese hater, and I'm not. Okay, no, I can't get into oh, this. Oh, man, I the can't. discourse is it's, it's surrounding us. It, I don't know. <laughs> you ever see clips in this Death Stranding where the BTs just grab him? That's yes, what's happened with that's the exactly right what now. just happened to me, Ignis. I get start dragged into the Scorsese hater corner. And uh, he needed animes for Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, and he cast a wide net for those animators. I wonder if that movie will ever become notable. We'll see. And his team put out an ad in Animage, uh, which is a well-known Japanese animation magazine. So as the story goes, uh, without one, so Anna was reading the magazine. He just decided to walk down to Miyazaki's I, office. I just want to remind the audience that we could definitely talk about Nausicaa because Nausicaa has mechs in it. That's true. I'm well, watch- Nausicaa does have mechs in it, doesn't it? Nausicaa, yeah. th- Ooh, it, it would give me an excuse. I own all, the whole manga set, but I haven't actually read it yet. I also want to announce that this is the the opportunity for me to talk about Hunter Hunter because uh-huh. Karapika is directly inspired by a feature of Nausicaa. Karapika, huh. one of the main characters. Anyway, keep going. Oh man, if if, I, if we went over everything that Nausicaa and Laputa inspired, we'd be here all night. Well, right. I mean, this is the thing that's that's really interesting. Why, uh, as a as a critic, I I enjoy the post structural lens. It's it's interesting how much of this DNA just spreads yeah. into and and that's why for example i really enjoy the conversation about voice actors mm-hmm. right yeah. through that yeah. lens yeah. the post-structural lens voice actors really add texture to characters when you remember that the guy who voices kiryu in uh uh uh, uh yakuza is in a band and and is really multi-talented and has a lot of like sort of that adds to the texture of kiryu in a way that's difficult to explain for the text, but is a mental thing, mm-hmm. which is Gynex something that I feel like they play off of a lot. That's yeah. why there's, oh, yeah. you know, it's cameos that they'll put in or, you know, I made a joke earlier about Shinji and Nadia and their designs being similar, but that there's a, there's a value to that. There's a value to Shinji's lack of explicit masculinity in his design there. You know, mm-hmm. Gynex is not unaware of how being, a fan of a thing teaches you to look for those patterns, you know, in the way that, that George Lucas might say, you yeah, know, it's like poetry. That's right. And so Ano walks down to the office and he knocks on the door. I just imagine Miyazaki, uh, no beard at this time, but, you know, slightly graying hair, probably smoking one of his cigarettes. And, uh, you know, he invites Ano in. Ano shows him some storyboards. And uh, he was immediately impressed with Ano to the point where he gave him, he brought him on and he gave Ano. 
the free reign to tackle one of the film's final and most impressive sequences, the God Warrior scene. You've all seen Nausicaa, right? I'm yes. sure you know the scene I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. It's very masterfully done from an animation's perspective. And Ano actually, and Miyazaki actually became pretty close. Uh, Ano was in his early 20s. Miyazaki became a mentor figure to him and helped him hone his craft. Uh, there's a clear Ghibli influences in Gainax's earlier work, specifically Royal Space Force and Nadia. Both of them, especially if you know anything about Ghibli's work. The two remain close to this day. If you saw The Wind Rises, if you watched the Japanese dub, uh, Ano was cast as the male lead. He wanted someone, uh, a newcomer, an amateur, which is – and it was an interesting choice. It was actually – if you watched the documentary about the making of the film, it was interesting seeing the two of them react to. They had a very comfortable and intimate relationship. Uh, they openly rib on each other. I don't know if I would use the term ribbing with Miyazaki. When, Mi- <laughs> when Miyazaki ribs on someone, I'm not condoning this, but he, like, rips open your soul. Yeah, it's not cool. It is not cool. It's, it's one of those uh, uh, Hideki Kamiya sort of, like, just just outrageously uh, forward and honest, or straightforward, I guess is the way yeah. to put it. Ano's a little more playful, though. In the commentary for Nausicaa, Ano uh, loves to call Miyazaki old geezer and calls out some of his directorial choices, which is hysterical. And But whenever... So he's, he's like... You know, he's playfully making fun of Miyazaki. Do you know what term he uses? Is, is Does he call him, like, Jichan or something like that? That I'm not sure. Okay. But uh, whenever Taito, the squirrel uh, creature, appears on screen, he just he's, he's like ribbing on Miyazaki, ribbing on Miyazaki, and he says, oh, Taito's cute. Taito's cute. <laughs> so I, it's interesting to see their relationship play out across the uh, the decades to come as well, because they, they've remained pretty close since then. Uh, at this time, Gen- so Ano is in Tokyo. He's doing some animation on Nausicaa. At this time, general production was continuing to do well. They were even expanding to sell licensed products, garage kit makers and other models. I forgot about general products. I know, general products. <laughs> The most generic name for it's a store. It's so good. I, I, I picked up the Dead Sea Scrolls, and I looked. What will I call my first child? And I came up with... Child. Child. Yeah, Primus. <laughs> first. Uh, Yamaga credits a lot of the store's success with the fact that it targeted a hardcore demographic, like a lot of Gainax's work. At the time, toy stores didn't really carry things like spaceships and stuff from anime, sci-fi films, or whatnot. It's actually interesting. They built a lot of their own kits. So it really catered to a hyper-specific market, but also that hyper-specific market had a lot of cash to burn. Do you do you know how this interacted with things like uh, the companies like Mattel or, or or toy companies like Diet? You know, like it, it, in, I'm thinking about '83, '84, and I'm thinking about Transformers, and we're starting to get that stuff over here because of Reagan and you know the the lack of uh, 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 regulation do, yeah, of children's do, media. Yeah, deregulation yeah. of children's media. Um, do you know if any of that? Do you have it in any of your notes, any of that interacting with the like rise of these sorts of specialty stores? You they know? were definitely selling Transformers stuff. I don't know if they specifically cut a deal. Later on, this is actually post-Gunbusters uh, by a few – actually, it might have been like the year Gunbuster came out. They actually – what kept them afloat for a little longer, and it was eventually integrated specifically into Gynax. They cut a deal with Enix at the time to sell like exclusive Dragon Quest merch, or there was a specific tie-in with Dragon Quest Four. Dragon Quest, man. Hmm. It's like poetry. <laughs> and uh, as Takeda, I love this impression now. And as Takeda put it, um, they were amid the preparations for Wonder Festival, another con they were setting up. Both Akeda and Yamaga had begun working on something else in secret. And they approached they, as they were working on something else. As they were working on general products, the two of them were working on this new animation product. I mean, the the thing that's it's interesting for them is how they've created their own portfolio already. Mm-hmm. They can already present to like. A company like, hey, we're, we want to make um, it's it's like Spaceship Yamato, but it will also have some mechs in it, and yeah, and that's essentially what they did. So General Products was like, all right, we're going to drum up some money. So around 
in today's money, or actually no, in 1984 money, around $8,500, but they needed more money, of course, to make animation. If you ever kickstarted an animation project before, even if you kickstart like hundreds of thousands of dollars, that might only be 20 minutes of animation too. Anyway, in order to begin work on their first produ- professional production, they needed investors and cash. And so um, they knew a guy through General Productions who worked at Bandai named Shigeru Watanabe. And they used this guy to get a meeting with the president of Bandai, Makoto Yamashina. Anyone know what Yamashina was working on at the time? Or what Bandai was funding at the same time? We've already studied it. Studied it with quotes around. We already talked about it. Oh, was that um, uh, War in the Pocket, then? Not, not War in the Pocket. The War in the Pocket will factor into it. Uh, Bandai was also funding something else at the same time. Oh. Um, Actually, no. Hold on. Save that question. Sorry. That's in the future. Woo. Pretend that didn't happen. Okay. Mid-80s right now. He approached the president of Bandai, and he asked them, essentially, you know, he pitched them for this idea for a film they had. And the president of Bandai was so enthused with the project that he, you know, he, they managed to secure a budget of 800 million yen, which is roughly about $3.3 million. Yeah. So, for a group of amateurs, that's incredibly impressive. And they need to trademark a company at this point. They need to you know, put their flag in the sand, so to speak, and really just say, we're official now. And this is where Gainax was born. Uh, unlike other production companies, the name is distinctly and uniquely Japanese. Gaina means big. That's not too much of a stretch. And they just added X to it. It's like, yo, we're, we like robots. Extreme! Yeah. And they associate that with uh, anime robots. So uh, that's where the name came from. I mean, you can even see this sort of naming convention in the in uh, Gunbuster. You know, yeah. the, the, the names of the, the all the ships are all Organization 13 members, it seems like, which are like, instead of Japanese names or English words that have some sort of meaning, they're like combination words that are, are a little bit like, just sound cool. Mm-hmm. Luxian. You yeah. Know. Excelion, yeah. you know, that sort of shit. Gainax. <laughs> and there is the misconnection that Gainax was a subsidiary of Bandai. That's not true. Their own independent company, Bandai, just foot the bill for this new film. And the company was registered by General Products. Uh, on the business end, Okada was president of Gainax, and Takeda was president of General Products. So presidents of the store and the animation company. And these are the two friends we talked about in the 70s. And the project that Bondi funded morphed into a feature film called Royal Space Force. I always butcher this fictional name. I mean, all names are fictional, but this one in particular, Honey, I can't remember try it. Anyway, Royal Space Force, The Wings of Blank. It's this name that's very difficult to pronounce. I was going to look it up before I end up, but anyway. Production shifted from Osaka to Tokyo, where Okada and Yamaga set up Gainax's first studio. And interestingly, Gainax was originally planned to be a temporary corporate entity. It was only going to be around for a few years to make this film, and they're going to split part ways afterwards. But of course, that you know didn't happen. And production began in 1984 and continued up until the film's release in 1987. And the film was beset with production issues. That's a whole nother podcast for another top another podcast for that specific film. But I do want to review some folks who worked on the film. Uh, Hiroyuki Yamaga directed the film and wrote the entire screenplay. He'll be like our main writer. And he was, Gain- he was president of Gainax up until 2015. Uh, Toshio Kata produced. Uh, Yashiyuki Sadamoto was the character designer. You might remember him as the... You played Dot Hack. You've seen his artwork before. If you've ever read the Evangelion manga, you've also seen his artwork before. Mm. Uh, Hideaki Yano was the mechanical designer, so he was working on... There's not really mechs in the film. There's just spacecraft and uh, sure. airplanes. You know, very Ghibli-inspired as well. And Kenichi Sonata worked on model sheets. And the film was a critical darling when it finally released in March 1987. Have any of you seen Royal Space Force? No. 
It is a great film, but it's marred by sexual assault in the film that kind of destroys the themes, uh, the film's thematic message. If you take that scene out, the film would be it's it's a it's a beautiful film. It's basically it takes place in this like Cold War fictional environment, not United States and Soviet Union. Two like competing powers, and they want to see who can get to space first. So, if you ever saw The Wind Rises, for example, and they're trying to get that aircraft off the ground and make that aircraft, it's like a similar working environment. And you know, it has a lot of the prob- problematic elements of other Gynax works, but that one scene magnifies it. But at the time, fans and critics liked it. Uh, Miyazaki praised its animation. I'm not sure what he had to say about the themes, but the film fucking tanked and only recouped about half its bu- budget. But Gynax wasn't dead at this point. They managed to pick up some commercial work. They created a promotional music video. A lot, a lot of companies do this to drum up some money. They worked on a few TV ads. And internally, work was commencing on some other more personal projects. Uh, also, we're in Tokyo now. Officially, it's 1987. And surprisingly, Bondi was game to fund a new OVA project. They said, but they said this. You know, you know, your film tanked before. We're willing to fund an OVA. It has to sell 10,000 copies. So Okada wrote up a project that would become Gunbuster. The details were vague, but he had a clear ending in mind, which is preserved in the final work, despite the fact that this early brainstorming stage differs from the final project. The ending apparently was, remains intact. And originally the team planned for three two-part OVAs, which is essentially what ended up happening. But momentum stalled. Uh, Anno did a cursory read of the script and was so dissatisfied that he volunteered to take over as director. This is important because this is the first time he directed something. And he is general, that's generally the role he adopts today. He, he helps with others than that, but it's the first time he actually sat down and directed something as opposed to working specifically on animation. Does, is there any specifics? I, I realize that those specifics might be lost without the context, and we've, we've thus far only seen the first two episodes. But there wasn't any... I'm very curious to know what elements that Anno thought were unacceptable and what he changed about them. But anyway. Yeah, I have no inkling of it either. Because like, Okada hasn't really done too much other stuff, too, where you can like, oh, I bet this is what Okada would have done. But he envisioned Gunbuster as a classic science fiction film. Yamaga, who worked on the script, saw it more as a pulpy robot action girl film, according to him. Anno, however, viewed it as a real mecha anime. Whatever the fuck that means. Real mecha anime. Real shit. Yeah. But so Bandai was active. So this is where I made that faux pas earlier. So in 1987, Bandai was actively working and funding another OVA project, which stalled momentum on Gunbuster, which was the Pat Labor OVAs. Bandai was funding the Pat Labor OVAs at the same time. So Gunbuster was kind of relegated to backburner status. Gunex wasn't working on Pat Labor, but the money was going in that direction. But Anno threw himself headfirst into the work. For the first episode, he stuck pretty close to Okada's script. So this is sort of like what happened to Xenogears once Final Fantasy VIII needed the, mm-hmm. needed the manpower. Uh, famously, Xenogears Disc II uh, was sacrificed on the altar of Final Fantasy VIII and uh, Chrono Cross. But anyway. Uh, that happens all the time. Yeah. With the uh, Guns of the Patriots, uh, Konami is like, we need to finish this fucking game. They pulled everyone from every fucking studio to throw into MGS4, <laughs> sacrificing so much to create that game. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, for example, so he famously – and he, he took some creative risks, so creative risks. He, he stuck to, close to the script for episode one, but he famously filmed the final episode in black and white, which is perhaps contradictory because you think, oh, black and white, that could be cheaper. It's actually much more expensive, especially animation as well. Whenever you, and Gynax is pretty famous for this, and we see this kind of like this pencil dot style in Gunbuster as well. Whenever you revert to a manga form in an anime, that's incredibly time-consuming to do, even though it might seem a little cheaper. 
So keep that in mind as well, because that's like another Gynax staple in animation as well. You see this with, sometimes people say, oh, they ran out of money. But sometimes it's a, a distinct creative choice, whether or not you buy that for Ava or not. But you see this in uh, Fully Cooley. There's a specific gag about this in the last, it looks, first and last it episode. It looks so great in Fully Cooley. The you first s- and last episode of Fully Cooley is, yes, it's very good. You see this in a His and Her Circumstances, Kari Kano as well, which is a really dope show. And when asked about it later, Anna said, when you have color, you have extra dimension in the way of the sense of scale we wanted to portray. Also, no one had ever done it before. And also, the crew wanted to give it a more documentary feel for that last episode. But let's, without further ado, finally, let's talk about what Gunbuster is. In, full, in Japan, the full title is Topu o Narai, I might be pronouncing that wrong, which roughly translates to Aim for the Top. It's a reference to the popular tennis manga from the 70s, Aim for the Ace. I had never heard of this before, my, this history, but it seems pretty cool. Tennis is really popular in Japan. Tennis and baseball. And other things, too, but you see that those two sports appear a lot in manga. Yeah, you'll see often the, the elements that take, make up the, the sort of exciting parts of, of these, especially even in Gunbuster, you'll see it, are holdovers from things in sports manga. Yeah. You know, a, a lot of the stuff that we would attribute to, like, Shonen in particular, mm-hmm. and a lot of that is in mecha shows just because they, they are imagined to have similar audiences you know that stuff comes from it doesn't surprise me that it's inspired by like a tennis manga in this way that that seems like the sort of thing that would have like people would recognize it when they saw it Mm -hmm. right in the same way that um space balls you know you you get what they're going for there even though space balls isn't isn't maybe not a good title in a context-free world you know what i mean it's funny too but you bring up space balls because people weren't sure whether to read gunbuster as a parody or not which we'll talk about when we actually talk about gunbuster but it's it's it's, those parodic elements especially when you look at someone like oda for example like comparing him to his i don't know top gun origins if you want to say that it's interesting to it's an interesting framed lens to look at i can see why some audiences were maybe unsure yeah it definitely isn't um uh uh i it definitely isn't landing one way or the other i would argue but yeah yeah. i agree with that statement so it takes place in the not too distant future this remember this is 1987 the not too distant future of 2015 which is now the not too distant past uh 2015 also figures prominently in anno's neon genesis evangelion when tokyo 3 is first attacked by the first angel uh, when asked about it later, he said, The date is from an old show I liked as a kid, and it was also the year in which Tetsuwan Adam took place. I think that's some sort of uh, pulpy sci-fi property. Uh, Gunbuster was a parody. Of, they claimed Gunbuster in some way was a parody of Top Gun, which I mentioned before. came out in 1986, was very popular in Japan as well. Just to give a little plot about Gunbuster, humanity is threatened by uh, invasion from insect i assume insect like aliens we see some of them in the first episode yes uh they were referred second to episode. in the super robot wars uh series as the uh hold on give me one sec this is worth the wait i promise i hope the george lucas voice comes out it is it's no this would not be a george <laughs> lucas voice unfortunately uh this one is uh, the Space Terrible Monster Crowd. Oh, that's excellent. The, the Space Terrible Monster Crowd is how these... they In in Gunbuster, they are just referred to as... as uh, I, they just say Space Monsters, mm-hmm. basically. They say, I think, Oshu Kaiju, which I think is just Space Monster yeah. oh, in the man. show. But I am... They are... As far as I'm concerned, the Space Terrible Monster Crowd. <laughs> I know people have some problems sometimes with, like, Kojima naming dynamics, but sometimes, like, the purposefully literate translations, like Die Hard Man and things like that, sometimes it hits, like, a pulpy sweet spot for me. There's definitely a – it makes it a choice, yeah. right? And, and whether or not that choice works for you is another topic, but mm-hmm. yeah. 
So uh, Gainax enlisted the aid of Studio Fantasia. Uh, by the way, when you're making anime too, you have to enlist other production houses to do kind of like the workhorse stuff. Like you might make the backgrounds, you might write the scripts, you make a lot of the directorial choices, but then you need like scores of animators working pain- painfully sometimes because this is all by hand to make these animation cells. Right. That's how you get like Madhouse working on XYZ show yeah. or whatever. And you usually see like a bunch of different studios jumping and they also enlisted some Korean animators as well in order to complete the project on schedule. And it was a very chaotic... Uh, uh, production schedule. People often characterize Gynax by this chaos, but eventually bore fruit because Gynax did, I mean, uh, Gunbuster did eventually get released. Uh, the six-episode OVA was released over a 10-month span, collected in three volumes. The first tape came out on October 7th, 1988. The last tape came out on July 7th, 1989. Actually, uh, 13 days before I was born, Gunbuster, the first OVA came out in 1988. Hmm. Uh, Gunbuster was seen by some industry observers as a reaction to the disappointing sale generated at the box office for the more sophisticated, quote-unquote, and serious Royal Space Force. Whether or not you buy that is up to you. But, you know, largely it wanted to do something that, hey, we need to make money on some shit. Let's sell some mechs. If that was the case, it certainly didn't didn't disappoint. Um, Gynax did make a pretty nice profit from Gunbuster. And, you know, depending on how you feel about Gunbuster, there's certainly a pretty youthful energy as well. There's pathos in Gunbuster. At least there's emotion. If it didn't land for you, that might be another thing. But there's certainly some pathos in Gunbuster. There's a, a sincerity, for yeah. sure. Like, an earnestness. Especially the relationship between... Uh, what's the main character's name? Just Noriko. Noriko and, yeah. and uh, Amano. Yeah. Shitaka Amano, the illustrator. I know. It's, you know these, these names are coming up. But also the relationship with their father as well. Those scenes tend to be... Or maybe not very poignant. Uh, well, I just... Uh, I uh, <laughs> Hideki Anno's directorial debut in the first five minutes is dad shit already, huh? Yeah. That's, that was just my first note. I was like, oh, okay, dad shit already. Yeah, zero huh? to dad in less than a second. Yeah, <laughs> it's fun. I'm not. I'm not sitting here saying that Ignis Maddox did not enjoy the dad stuff. I'm. I'm just saying that in in mech shows, uh, mech mecha dads love their daughters, but not their sons. Uh, that's very true. And uh, attracted a loyal fan base. Some fans were confused, like we said before how to interpret Gunbuster, like how to take it as a parody or something more serious. But I want to touch on some of our principal players before I wrap this thing up. So we're near the end. Thank you. Thank you. Aim for the top. We are near the end of the mountain. Uh, Toshi Okada produced Gunbuster. We talked about him before. He served as the president of Gynax until 1992. The last thing he worked on was the two-part OVA Otaku no Video, which is kind of his baby, which is, I hate to use this term again, but like a love letter to 80s anime fandom. It's like a... It's got some creepy shit in it, but it's generally like a look at otaku culture. Kind of framed as a documentary, kind of not. There's some live-action bits as well. After leaving Gainax, he entered academia as a lecturer and has written several books on otaku culture. Hideaki Anno directed Gunbuster. He remained creatively involved with Gainax until 2007 when he left to start his own company. Of course, he is working on a few stuff, but primarily the rebuild films of Evangelion and, you know, Shin Godzilla and now Shin Ultraman. He went on to create Nadia, Ava, and many other adaptations, but like Nadia and Ava are his babies, so to speak. Yeah. He directed His and Her Circumstances. You know, he helped out here and you know, probably gave his advice for Fooly Cooly. And maybe the early uh, Gurren Lagan stuff. But his hand, like what you consider like what's Anno's stuff, it's Ava. Nadia, Gunbuster, things like that. Uh, Hiroyuki wrote the scripts. Hiroyuki Yamaga wrote the scripts for Gunbuster and is still 
is actually a correction. He's no longer with Gainax. He left in about 2005. But he now – he served as president until 2005. Gainax is a real shell of its former self. There's been many migrations of employees and also the company has fragmented. As, there's now like three versions. Gainax itself now is like a holding company that like manages their property in the museum. There's something called Gaina, which is an offshoot, like Gainax Kyoto. So whole mess of corporate entities. But he also wrote the screenplay for War in the Pocket, Hiroyuki huh. Yamaga. Okay. Also, Taku no Video, and he worked on uh, Magical Shopping Arcade Abinobashi. He also worked on a... He helped out with uh, Gurren Lagann as well. Do you feel like, with, with, your, with your understanding of the history, do you feel like you are closer to the answer as to why they feel like the avatar of the positive aspect of fandom engagement is a sexy lady? That... I'm not sure. Well, so the reason I ask is because if you look at, like, the DNA of Daikon 3 and 4, the, the you know, those shorts, mm-hmm. the, the thing, if there was, like, a, if you were asked, like, what is the, like, message to be taken from them, they're very much, uh, like, hey, shit is cool. <laughs> Isn't this shit cool? This mm-hmm. rules. And you who are enjoying this shit are also cool for enjoying it. Let's all enjoy this now. It's it's cool to enjoy things. And I agree, it is cool to enjoy things and share your enjoyment. But I'm curious, because these are all, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but these were all dudes who are, like, disaffected by, you know, uh, a, a sort of, like, more conventional mainstream lifestyle mm-hmm. um and have an interest that 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 is strong enough to to alter their life course to this degree um and and there are all of these works focus and and highlight the experience of of women and and it seems interesting to me that they would choose especially in a world where there's a possible lens of like well they did it like a a serious one and the serious one didn't star women, and now this this one that is like more popular, more more accepted in the fandom, and and is kind of in line with how they presented themselves in mm, Daikon yeah. three and four. I'm I'm just curious because I'm I'm sitting here looking at it, and I'm like, okay, this this uh, bunny lady is cool, and is fighting Darth Vader, and that owns, you know, and she's got a sword that she's flying around on, that's super cool. But I'm watching, and it's like, well, she started as this little girl. And then became like a titty woman, mm-hmm. and and I'm just and I'm, I'm I'm trying to put that together with things like like Gurren Lagann, where or or even even Gellion, where the 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 lady characters are are like like fraught with nuance, right? And whether or not that nuance is like valuable is is in the eye of the beholder. But it's interesting to me that that these dudes are such, I you know, and this is like a this is dismissive. Such like eighties anime creative dude types. This yeah. is like as much as their story is unique, the mm-hmm. fact that they are fans first and, and they 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 fell ass backwards into making celebrated works with prominent people who once given the opportunity created valuable things, you know, like these are these are just like dudes that kind of, you know, no not no offense because they're not boring. Obviously they have incredible creative uh, 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 achievements that are you can point to that exist, but like to to make a story that is about 
a a woman and her relationship to her father and her relationship to her peers and like to to frame that now with the understanding of how they would previously frame women and the fact that it's just dudes behind the scenes it's it's one of those things where it's difficult to i would really like an answer right i would really like to know why they landed and like there's answers i can think of that there's are a lot cynical. of commercial reasons too right yeah, yes exactly the old adage you know might prove true here that sex sells yeah this it, and really and and that's where I, I i feel like it's i i would have liked it if there was more reckoning i suppose with that because oh, yeah. it, it's it's those things where i have my reasons for finding some of those characters like f- for example like nadia or nia who are on the sliding scale of being like good female characters yeah. right you know when, when we when we three dudes discuss the the merit or value of of characters especially ones that present as as ladies uh there's a whole lot of um uh, a lot to 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 unpack when it comes to that um but I, I am i am a defender of sliding scale of importance of characters that a, a character not being featured doesn't necessarily mean they've uh, an injustice has been served uh, always this is not obviously examine every case as it comes you know this is a is, is definitely something worth thinking about when and it's like what do you mean this character only had six lines in the whole movie and i didn't even notice oh no you know that that sort of thing definitely keep in mind mm-hmm. but there's there's just it's just interesting to learn more directly how this wasn't it didn't even enter into their mind yeah right it feels like it was probably automatic like people liked Daikon for lady so if ladies moving forward are in that vein they will continue to like that yeah right and and like it may or may not be more innocent or guilty than that it's just interesting that we can we can dig that much into it and we don't necessarily have more straightforward answers to like what the fuck like you know like it, it's it's just kind of a, a like there's on one hand i i do understand like inherently why you would you would highlight your your fan convention with a playboy bunny lady right with a sword like if if you were someone who was cynical and asked the bot to create like the most like the best selling like like product it might like push something like this out which is like a sexual being with an action beat to it right like that's 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 i just described hollywood <laughs> um but there's it's just interesting for me as as someone who has as uh engaged with the some of these characters and and finds them valuable despite them being kind of flimsy and like you kind of you do have to sort of like in, in, uh, uh confront that sort of reality of like the 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 intention of these characters is is way more like yucky than i'd like in particular yeah, yeah. you know and it's it's one of those things i'm very curious to hear from others about especially like especially if you find characters like uh uh noriko and amano's like relationship in engaging you know like th- does that change when you learn that like they are generally like because because what that says to me is that they're they're basically just writing like dudes that set, they think sound like women, right? Mm-hmm. Like in particular, I'm thinking of a scene in episode two of Gumbuster that there's no. Have you guys seen women written by men? That that sort of meme going around, you know, like it's like that, right? Where and and I'm like, and you know, there's there's a part of me that's like, well, like 
this is a story that could appeal to real people. Yeah. And like and and this shit is is not like a problem where it's like throughout the whole fucking Gunbuster is garbage now because they they talk about their their boobs sagging because of how big and supple they are or whatever. Like it's 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 shit like that, right? Where it's like like you know we've heard that exaggerated like hyperbolic sort of criticism of she moved boobily, you know, and 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 that's what you know what comes to mind when it comes to that sort of fan service. Like we talk about there's a line right where it's like. You know, in Code Geass, we have the example of uh, of Colin in the in the shower, right? Where her not necessarily caring about her nudity was was where I was okay with it, and suddenly when she was um, embarrassed by it, that's when it became a bad scene, right? Right, right. And, and in the same way, the the uh, some of the 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 sexualization, you can kind of go like, well, this is cheeky fun. And then it's largely just with the framing of like these are all dudes, and they're all dudes who are like desperate to make sure this one is successful so they can keep moving forward. And what they've learned, you know, we, we've talked about it and it's cynical, but it, it's also true is that there's a very hyper specific market that seems to have specific levers you can pull. And there's, there's almost an, a, like how much can you, I mean, I can, and I will blame the market for producing that sort of content if that's what works, but it kind of sucks that like, there isn't a point in this history where we can go, and then they asked the lady what she thought. I know. I was, I was hoping for that throughout the whole thing. I think it's a combination, too, of commercial interest and, as gross as this sound, sometimes creators lusting over their own work too much, which makes me feel icky sometimes as a consumer. But a lot of that is a part and parcel of Gynex, that, that for lack of a better term, horniness is pervasive. Yeah, there is there is something to be said about the like inherent sort of appeal of indulging that uh, impulse of like, you know, uh, uh, there is a, a, um, a prosdy skit, a prosdy skit, however you pronounce his, his handle, which is just called anime fans. <laughs> um, and, uh, it is basically lampooning how, uh, as a culture we have, we have learned how to, uh, take the, the language of uh, analysis and, and apply it to things to many things and and that can maybe justify some 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 stuff that doesn't you know merit justification necessarily but this is a the 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 truth the hard truth the the rough pill to swallow about critical analysis is that it is a universal tool set and uh once you understand how it works you can apply it to a lot of things that you know may or may not be worthwhile and and that's subjective obviously and but some stuff sucks anyway um, the, uh, the thing that really, the thing I wanted to highlight about that prosody skit is there is a, a worse version of it, which is the, uh, th- shit your, your English teacher thinks, uh, which is my least favorite meme of all time. Um, but the, the important thing I want to stress is that there is an unspoken sort of rule about that sort of appeal where, that appeal where the appeal of indulging in something that is like, you know, is, is not the best uh, as far as like a, a moral stance or a value to have, like it's, it is not okay necessary or not. Okay. is not even the right way to put it. It is maybe socially unacceptable to be horny on main about the thing you drew. Right. Mm-hmm. But also there's, 
there are people who will pay you money to experience that. Right. And, and like, I'm one of those people, we kind of all are, you know, not like we, we are indicted in, in this sort of thing of engaging with this sort of work. And, and this is the experience we kind of sign up for, which I want to stress kind of sucks. Like, you know, like it, it kind of sucks that in order to get the mecha experience that, that I'd like, and you know, a story that is about how this, this, uh, amalgamation of of technology in the shape of a man, uh, you know, or or humanity, I should say, uh, it, it, and and how it is related to the characters and the narrative. Like, and Godmaster, even in episode one, is already doing that. Already doing that in a way. Not you know, I'm not putting Code Geass on blast. Already doing it in a way that Code Geass did not do. Mm-hmm. Right. Um. But it's a shame that it kind of. It feels like Gynax in particular feels is part and parcel with also like titty stuff, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And and it and you know with the history, unfortunately, I don't, don't really walk away with a better explanation of why yeah. necessarily. Under than as, as just what these dudes liked, right? Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. So interestingly enough, uh, Gunbuster was when oh you weren't done. I'm so sorry. Oh no, <laughs> no no, it's, it's, we're almost done. Gunbuster was one of the first anime properties to make it over to the West, like really super early. We're not talking about like 1995 VHS tapes at your Blockbuster, though you might have run into Gunbuster at Blockbuster. These came out in 1990, courtesy of U.S. Renditions. That company has since closed, and then they closed a few years later. But they brought over some other mech stuff, too. But each volume was priced at 35 bucks, which actually is pretty reasonable for 1990 standards for two episodes. For a VHS, yes. 30, yeah. 35 is more reasonable, yes. Uh, Manga Entertainment picked up the rights and reissued the tapes in 1996 after U.S. renditions folded. Uh, Bondi later released two separate DVDs in the U.S. in 2006 and 2007. Uh, both versions remained undubbed, however. Gun- I mean, uh, Gunbuster has yet to be dubbed. Um, apparently Gynax lost the original music and effects track so if you were to go back and make an English dub that would be an exhausting task and no one has since done that because it would have to be reconstructed from the ground up mm. so again it remains undubbed to this day which is actually a pretty unique trait for something of uh, this magnitude I guess not yeah. that everyone knows Gunbuster but there's a certain you know heredity I think it's at the end of this history. I think it's inarguable to that Gunbuster is pivotal, right? Like if, if even unless articles, especially in the context of the history of Gynax, yeah, like Gunbuster is pivotal. Yeah, without a doubt. Because if Gynax is folded, you might not have you know even before Evangelion, like Nadia was super big as well. It's very right. popular. I mean, like if if, if not for it, it is enough to say that if not for Gunbuster, we probably wouldn't have had Evangelion, and if we didn't have Evangelion Mecha as we know it. Yeah, just- like it, it, people who especially don't like consume Mecha anime in general, like Evangelion for better or for worse, reshaped, rewired almost Japanese culture. It's 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 incredibly ingrained into Japanese popular culture, not just animation culture. People. If you were to walk, if you if you were to see Ava, whatever the fuck they're going to call it, four point four four or whatever in theaters, it's you will find a wide variety of people seeing that movie. It's right. not just relegated to a small otaku clan either. Right. It is kind of in the similar way that Dragon Quest was for, yeah. and, and still kind of is, but it was for a very long time. Even something like Star Wars as well in the United States in that post Vietnam world, like that's uh, Evangelion, the post World War. 90s of Japan to a certain degree as right. well. Right. I was going to uh, compare it even to more to like close encounters or jaws yeah. more, more than star wars not to give put like star wars i think has a very specific sort of effect one that i think it fits more cleanly to its comparison to gundam in specific mm-hmm. to 
merchandising. Merchandising, you know? absolutely. Yeah. The, whereas even Galleon, the, the effect it has is feels a little bit more cultural mm-hmm. in the way that Close Encounters and Jaws and other films like that, Godfather, prepared us for like blockbusters, mm-hmm. right? Where yeah. where the cinema was a place where you went for an epic narrative experience you know that that sort of right, like, right. Like art the, the sort of thing that scorsese my my nemesis would 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 demand uh you know we we engage in in order for it to officially count as as a as a movie you're gonna need a scorsese impression I, soon I, I yeah, gotta go work that. on that it's gonna be it's so bad i don't <laughs> listen please please don't at me i don't i really don't have a problem with scorsese i'm just making fun of this the discourse i mm-hmm. really don't so uh, we're almost done here. To celebrate the company's 20th anniversary, Gynax released a sequel to Gunbuster known as Die Buster, also in Japan known as Aim for the Pop. Aim for the Pop. Aim for the Top 2. Uh, hopefully, we might cover this on a future pod, so I'll set that history aside for another time. But in 2006, Gynax released a theatrical version of Gunbuster. I'm actually surprised this took so long to happen because this is kind of slow hanging fruit. It's really easy money. It happens all the time with OVAs. Yeah. Almost every OVA will cover, not every, but like a lot of them, probably like 60 to 70% of the OVAs will cover in some form have been readapted to a feature film. Right. And uh, it was it cuts down the six-episode OVA into a brisk 95-minute movie. It features no new animation, but sports a new 5.1 soundtrack and a re-recorded dialogue from the original cast as well. You can get this really easily. Uh, I actually bought a copy of it off Amazon for 10 bucks. You can get... This is like... If you wanted to buy Gunbuster in the US, this is really the only option at this point, unless you find some other means of getting it. It's the... 90-minute film version. Mm. It was released in the States. Easy way to get it. And uh, like I said before, Gynex has undergone a lot of change. Once Anno left with his group to start his company, and after Gurren Lagann as well, and after they left to form Studio Trigger, Trigger, Gynex has since floundered and fragmented since then. But apparently they say they're working on a... I don't even know which version of Gynex. You have these competing companies that are still around, like how the rights land. But... Yamaga at least says that a third gunbuster has been written. We'll see if that ever gets made. Even though, you know, Gynax isn't if you ask someone in Japan, oh Gynax, I've heard of them. I don't think they actually have a lot of money. Like Super don't have a lot of money to finance something like Gunbuster for, in an OVA format in 2019. OVAs were few and far between in the year 2019. Yeah, it's a, the market's different. Yeah. You know, like it's just it, it doesn't necessarily that that environment that that created the the OVA is is one that is was kind of specific and doesn't really exist anymore. Yeah, you could you could make an argument for things like uh, blah, 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 like YouTube originals being like the sort of progenitor or no, that's not the right successor. Word. Successor. I mean, yeah. you still do see some OVAs like a few Gundam OVAs because that that very specific demographic like you have a lot of people who grew up with Gundam with a lot of expendable income who are now in their 40s and 50s who are still willing like, you know this is the one thing they buy like you know people see Star Wars still like I'm gonna I don't see a lot of movies like this but I'll see every Star Wars film like right. I'll buy the latest Gundam OVA about the one year war right. Gundam uh, Thunderbolts I'm thinking of there, the, I mean in the way that we that we we talked about expectation when it comes to medium. Uh, there is a a sort of thing to be said about the act of going and getting a physical media thing and sitting down and watching it all in a row and and that might not be a, you know that might be worth the expenditure right of of going out and doing a thing that is kind of old old school and mm. not really the way that things are distributed much anymore mm. but I feel like you'd have to be something like Gundam to get away with it so that kind of tracks you know. I'm trying to think. There are definitely examples of this, like 
like you could kind of say fighting games are like that. Right? Yeah, like yeah. Fighting games are, you know, this is no shade. Fighting games are my favorite games, but 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 if you are not the sort of person who wants to learn how to play piano in order to engage with. A, a thing you remember that thing i was complaining about about having to do an obstacle course well what if instead of having to do an obstacle course you had to do an obstacle course against someone who is much better at this obstacle course and is also looking to defeat you to make sure you can't finish the obstacle course that's what playing fighting games are like and developing fighting games is even harder because do you PMC, do you do you serve the audience who will follow you and will definitely maintain their interest in fighting games by creating something that is complicated and it, it, you know for them it, uh, being knowledgeable about fighting games is engaging to them, or you make it easier to deal with, but maybe not something that is interesting to your fans, or do you just do nothing and not make any fighting games anymore? Which is the 2019 answer, if, <laughs> unless you are Tekken and Soul Calibur. Yeah, unless you're Namco Bandai. And I, yeah, I mean, in, in you know, I think in, in year 2019, I think this is going to become a bigger story in the world of you know gaming and maybe media at large as we go into our next next decade here. But certainly, the the story of what do you do about the vocal fandom? Yes, it that's does. I think the way to summarize it is because you know so often when a new Star Wars comes out, when a new this or that comes out, when a new fighting game comes out from from Bamco or Capcom if it ever does again or whatever, uh, you know you you have you have now the internet which amplifies this uh, this vocal contingent which doesn't always you know to the extent which that vocal response represents things. I mean sometimes it. Maybe it does, and sometimes maybe it doesn't. I feel like um, it feels weirdly arbitrary, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think the recent Pokemon launch was a great example of something where you had a, a vocal contingent that that was felt really out of step with the broader response, which was Pokemon's fun. I like Pokemon, right? <laughs> you yes. know, and that vocal contingent, even though they say they're never going to buy your product again, will a hundred percent be there day one to buy your product. It's 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 you know it's one of those things that. It, it, it's tough, right? It, it's right. one of those things that that makes the the act of in, engaging with these kinds of big franchises like this this kind of question of like how what where does this fit into my life, right? Mm-hmm. Like where, yeah. what what kind of value or role does this? Because there are people for whom the, the the act of engaging like this that that sort of like I don't know mud flinging I guess would be a, a fair way to characterize it is like. A feature, not a bug. Yeah, that's the that's the point. Well, and and this is kind of what I'm what I mean. Like when we discussed uh, uh, how we are not as a culture really trained to react to different objective realities, we don't haven't given tool sets for that. And part of the results of that is that like, oh, when I dislike a thing, the way I act on that is I go online and I tell strangers that they are wrong for liking a thing. That is the and that's fine to do because Twitter is a public forum, and if you share things on Twitter, that means that uh, right. I mean, you only get in trouble for calling people Nazis on Twitter. You don't actually get in trouble for doing bad things on Twitter. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so it, you know, it's it's one of those things that uh, makes engaging with stuff like this complicated, and being knowledgeable about the the creators of stuff like that helps. You know helps someone who is concerned about this frame how to proceed mm-hmm. right it's it helps to know you know 
who who was behind the scenes and what what kind of dictated the decisions as they went down i was for for me i was very concerned about why a a a lady protag right because if you think about pat labor yeah um the the pat labor guys chose to focus on noah specifically because they felt there was a vacuum of characters like noah now the the reality of noah ended up being different from that and 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 i would argue that has 100 percent to do with the fact that they were all dude creators right mm-hmm. um but this doesn't feel quite as mindful as pat labor yeah, supposedly was you, you, right yeah it definitely feels like in the way that that it, you put a uh, a naked lady with a gun in a bond opening because that's what you I'm here for this James Bond film now. So where is the 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 abstract where's naked the sex? woman? Yes, yeah. where's the abstract naked woman in this intro? It feels like that sort of choice. Yeah, which is where the the like I'm curious to know. I I, I never really have a it, it, like an easy time engaging with the topic of like because everything's for me, right? Like ostensibly, I, I'm supposed to think this is great, right? Because yeah. I, I get this this free ticket into. The, the mind of a, a you know it reminds me of of, of uh pat labor uh two where uh we were not allowed to to be in the mind of uh koizumi i believe uh the 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 nagumo nagumo yeah. you're right nagumo um nagumo as she was reacting to her her mm. former lover being this this terrorist force or like we never got to do see what she thought about any of this right and this this thing about the way that that like women end up in anime and how they're portrayed and, and it makes me wonder how any uh anyone who's who's not like a hetero dude gets into anime at all like it, it's it makes me wonder how that stuff lands i'm very curious to hear especially any listeners please send in i would love to hear about this i want to hear your opinion about Gynax and the the role of women in Gynax stuff and and how that appears to be in a you know one of the things I had you know difficulties with when I was learning how to engage with this sort of topic was the idea that that putting like any particular idea on a pedestal can can make is is maybe not the best or more appropriate way to like hold that idea that that's not honoring that idea necessarily like tolkien is a good example of Mm. this right like tolkien has there's no there's no girls in in lord of the rings there's eowyn right but eowyn is on a a particular she has a particular role on a particular pedestal so she's not really a super good example against that that tolkien put you know isn't super great at the topic of women have a particular role in tolkien stories Mm -hmm. right and they aren't allowed to be people in the same way that some of the other people can now you can make an argument about you know the type of story that tolkien is telling that every single character has more of a role than is it like a person Mm -hmm. but that's a whole different topic Right, right? right, right, right and so here we have a sort of similar situation right where like the the daikon lady mm-hmm. and, and and haruko later for example in in Fulikui, um and anoriko aren't like jokes right we are we are meant to think they are cool we are maybe even meant to empathize with them but i i i think it's interesting that the choice to present that image is one that seems incidental or even cynical and and i i guess i i guess i'm just disappointed to 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 learn that in a more like concrete reality mm-hmm. right yeah yeah 
Uh, is that a? Is that a? Is that is that about it as far as our history goes? For that Gonex? wraps it up. Yeah, I know. I, I wish about... our longest history yet. Yeah, I wish I didn't. I didn't end it on that bummer. No, but, <laughs> but you know, it's 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 one of those things. Gynex, I think, will have a lot of. Uh, yeah, I mean, overall, I have a very conflicted you know, view of Gynex too. Like, I I really do appreciate a lot of their works too, but there's a lot of just. I problematic is too general a term too, but like it's just some internal yuckiness which I have problems getting past at times, especially the, as an older, you know, as an older adult looking in as well. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those things that we're, we're we'll just have to incorporate into our analysis. You know, mm-hmm. that's we'll have to experience that yucky feeling. It's and, true, and and vomit it all over our audience, I guess. <laughs> but you know, it's it's something that I, I think Gynex will for this podcast will continue to spark joy. To quote Marie Kondo, seller of uh, keys now. Uh, the- <laughs> <laughs> Don't say that too loudly in this house. <laughs> um, the the uh, you know I think that despite the the stuff we're going to run across, like young Freud, who who, who will it's my favorite new rap artist. <laughs> <laughs> talking about Kojima ass names. <laughs> young- so listen, we're not talking about episode two yet, but young Freud is introduced and looks dead ass into the camera lens of the screen as young Freud is introduced in a way that's like, yes, Ignis Maddox, that is my name. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, fuck, you can't do this to me, Anno. But And if you are a Gynex fan or like, oh no, these guys going to drag uh, me through the mud with Gynex. I mean, I, there's a lot I like about Gunbuster just moving forward. There's a lot I appreciated about it. We'll talk about the shitty stuff too. Oh yeah, I mean, no spoilers, but I, I liked Gunbuster. Yeah. Like, yeah. like yeah. you know, when I, it, it, I'm just, it, I think it's, for me, I'm concerned about this, you know, because I, and this will, we'll get into it, like, I, I found Gunbuster very earnest and sincere, yes. and I and I connected to it on that level, and and I and I'm dismayed to learn that it wasn't it wasn't a choice made for that reason. Yeah, you know that that's mostly what I and I feel like that it's going to come up when we talk about some lady characters in Gynax properties, but I guess in fairness to Gynax, like you know it, this seems to just be the like tapestry of Japanese mecha, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, this yeah. just appears yeah. to be a, an ongoing and like, there's a lot of it. like, it seems like obvious reasons, the most obvious being like, there just aren't women and others involved behind the scenes in general and so we, we get, you know the ideas about what women are like, yeah. and that's mostly where I'm like eh. but yeah uh, I guess then we can go ahead and wrap up our, our history for Gynax uh, we will next time you check this out. This next time you check bop blip blop blip bop blah 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 blah. Next time you check out this space, uh, we'll be talking about Gunbuster episode one and two. Mm-hmm. Uh, those they have very long titles, so you will. <laughs> you oh, they're will, great. They're wonderful. They are very good titles. But we will announce those titles in those episodes, and uh, that you will catch probably just next week. Yep. Um, we are going to be following a pretty linear schedule for this episodes one and two, and then three and four, and then five and six. Yeah, they divided it neatly for our podcast. That's true. Yeah, those OVAs like this are are real clean to cover yeah. for our mm-hmm. show. Yep. So yeah, with that being said, I was Ignis Maddox, Stephen Hero, BMC Trilogy, and we'll catch you next time. But this time we're going to have a robot fight on the football field. This week, Chris. I'm glad we have some bits now. I, I forgot that, that Hugh Jackman was, was not Wolverine.